Hello and welcome to episode 1968 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Well, it's a dark day. Mm. It's a day we've long dreaded, although one that has also long seemed inevitable to the point that In a sense, there's almost a a little bit of relief that comes with it just to end my suffering or at least to make my (laughs) suffering permanent. (laughs) Let me me get used to the idea. The point is the zombie runner is not going away. Now, we've known that it wasn't going away basically since it started. I think we had the sense once they got it in there on a trial basis, we would never be free of it. But certainly once it continued past the peak of the pandemic, it seemed like it was just a matter of time. And the MLB Joint Competition Committee, which is composed of players and owners and executives and umpires, voted unanimously to extend it into 2023 and beyond. So they're not even maintaining the charade that this is a a short-term move. Presumably, this is still seen as too farcical for the postseason. So it's not spreading to October yet. That's something we can cling to. It's only for the regular season because who cares about those games just get them over with well first of all i have to say based on some of the like truly dark stuff that we have talked about on this podcast i'm sure we had some (laughs) listeners who are like oh god what happened now (laughs) no it's even worse than that yeah it's (laughs) (laughs) the worst has come to pass and you know i think the really bad news i mean there's a lot about this that we don't like right (laughs) one underrated aspect of it is that you know some of our listeners have been thinking to themselves surely They've exhausted the the pedantic nature of the podcast, right? There there can't be more things to be pedantic <laughs> about. But now, Ben, now, mm, yeah, we have to now the the battle truly begins, right? Now, <laughs> now we meet our our final boss, which is to get people right. to call this, you know, at the very least, the Manfred Man, which I don't prefer. I, you know, we talked about no. it before. Not my preference. But we gotta we gotta hold the line on Ghost Runner because yeah. already I am seeing, you know, I I'm never happy I logged on to Twitter, right? I always have some pang of regret, but today <laughs> it was more profound than even yeah. usual because <sighs> a ghost runner is a thing. It's a specific yeah. thing. We've talked about this. We don't have to rehash the whole argument here, but mm-hmm. we've we have made our stance on this known as a, you know. Mid-sized niche podcast about baseball. <laughs> yeah, I thought and that now, would be the end of it. Once we ruled one way or another, I thought everyone else would fall into line, but that hasn't happened. Yeah, and uh, now we gotta really, we gotta rally uh, the troops. You know, we gotta, mm-hmm. we gotta bring people to our cause. We have yeah. to. I'm trying to come up with a the Last of Us analogy, <laughs> but that's only because I'm really proud that I am current on not one <laughs> but two prestige TV shows wow. right now, Ben. You know, Good for I'm, you. You're all over the zeitgeist. I'm fully up to date on The Last of Us and Poker Face. And let me tell you, <laughs> I am I am devastated and delighted in equal measure. Almost as <laughs> yeah. devastated as I am by the fact that we are going to have this rule and that people will persist in calling it a ghost runner. You know, it's right. like, let's fight all the zombies. You know, we got to fight them everywhere, whether they are the result of a rules committee or mushrooms. 
Yeah, because we've been fighting this battle all along, but we've right. been fighting on two fronts, really. Right. Our forces have been diverted right. because we've been fighting this holding action, this rearguard action against the rule itself, holding out hope that perhaps our bully pulpit would make some difference in, in preventing this from becoming permanent. Well, now we know that's not going to happen. So right. we can concentrate all of our firepower on this one battle which is the terminology aspect right. of things. If we're stuck with the rule, at least let's call it something accurate that right. does not mean something else. And if you want to go with zombie runner, that's our preferred term. Sure. Manfred Man, it's, it's better than ghost runner, even automatic runner, extra innings runner. Any of those is, is okay. It's acceptable. But ghost runner, as we have covered, it means something else. This is a corporeal runner. Right. It is a physical person who right. is on the bases. It's not an imaginary runner. Right. There's an actual living, breathing human being out there who is, in a sense, being reanimated, brought back from the dead after yep. making it out in the previous inning. It's a zombie. A zombie is a, a shambling, physical, corpse-like being that is undead but is there. You can touch it. It will chomp you. It is not a yeah. ghost. It's no. not the ghost runner that we grew up playing with when we didn't have enough people right. to run the bases. That is right. a, a different entity altogether. Right. So, yeah, I was dismayed to see how many headlines. I mean, <sighs> reputable outlets whose journalistic judgment I trust. Yeah. They're just desecrating the term that we have helped popularize here and really any acceptable term. And I hate to see that cemented almost as much as I hate to see the rule itself cemented. So we're stuck with one. Let's hope we're not stuck with the other. Look, if it can't menace Pedro Pascal and make him reignite his fatherly feelings for a dead daughter, then I don't want to hear about it. They're so scary, Ben. And I feel vindicated because I have been saying, look, I want to like mushrooms. I want to. I feel like that's the sophisticated thing to do, right? It is an indication right. of a refined palate. I've never been able to get on board with mushrooms, and I felt bad about it or at least affected that I felt badly about it. And mm -hmm. now... Now I'm here to tell you uh, I will survive and it will be others. Yeah. There's a, a great cultural backlash against fungi happening. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah so. I saw someone on Instagram being like, I'm at a mushroom tasting. And I'm like, are we doing that still? <laughs> right. So anyway, this has been a pop culture corner with Meg mm -hmm. Rowling. Anyway, if uh, you're not as against the zombie runner as we are, I'm I'm happy for you, I guess, that you got your way. Sadly, it, it goes against my desires. And look, it does its job to some extent. It gets the games over with sooner, which is the primary purpose. And no wonder people with teams and players themselves like it. And perhaps even some media members do. For me, it's just a distorting effect. It's two different versions of baseball. It's a fundamentally different game that kicks in at a time when the stakes are high and we've had a close game and I hate to see the conditions change so drastically that you can get on base without earning your way on and even though it leads to fewer innings being played those innings are longer and the pace bogs down so I don't even find it super exciting or strategically interesting your mileage may vary on that but just do me a favor just have the courtesy to call it something other than ghost runner and I will at least celebrate that you can't even call it a silver lining I don't think necessarily but at least there's a, a little sweetness that goes with the poison here in that I approve of the other change yes. that the joint competition committee instituted unanimously, which is to place further limits on position players pitching. 
because yep. that has continued to get out of hand. I think we've been less charmed by it lately yeah. now that it has become so incredibly common and they are tightening the rules and restrictions again to hopefully make it so that we will see fewer position players pitching, that it will just be a little bit in moderation, right? So the previous rule, you could use one when you were up or down by six or more runs or it was extra innings. And now either it has to be extra innings or the minimum is 10 or more runs that one team has to be ahead of the other. So that will cut down on it somewhat. Friend of the show, Eric Steven, did sort of an informal survey of last year's uh, 131, I think he said there were, position player pitching appearances, according to Baseball Reference, and actually 132. And he found that one of those was in extras. And then of the 131 that were not in extras, this rule would have eliminated about 39 of them. So still a minority of the position player pitching appearances from last year that would have been ruled out by this rule. So I think you'd have to up it to, say, 12 or more maybe if you really wanted to crack down. But this will at least stop the almost exponential increase, I guess. It'll rein it in a little bit. Right. Much, much like a quarantine zone. <laughs> it's gonna keep really, going. really stuck on The Last of Us, huh? <laughs> it was affecting. Did you, are you watching? Of course you are. I am, yes. I, I played the games, but I, I am watching. I read a bit of video game related journalism courtesy of one Ben Lindbergh, but I had oh, to yeah. wait until mm. I had seen I had seen it, you know? I mm-hmm. had to wait. It's just is it's quite moving for a video game based show that is about mushroom zombies, really. Like it gets you <laughs> Mm -hmm. In your feelings, in a way I was not anticipating, especially after the Super Bowl. So anyway, (laughs) I guess our takeaway here is that Dick Monfort giveth and he taketh away, you know. (laughs) But yeah, I think any any effort to staunch the use of position players pitching, it's just, it's out of hand, you know. It is, yeah. It's so obviously out of hand. I regret that it had to get to a point where you're right. This thing that we we used to enjoy it. It used to mm-hmm. be fun, and then you'd get you got to the point where you started getting like alerts from the MLB app, and it was like mm-hmm. I'm getting a lot of these. Like right. I'm yeah. getting somebody also. I I don't want to I don't want to uh, make anybody feel bad, but somebody was a little asleep at the switch in terms of the the notifications there because they went on a little longer than was probably <laughs> advisable because mm-hmm. it made me very aware of the frequency of position player pitching, and then we started seeing guys you know on on winning teams in blowouts, and I I want Hanser Alberto to have a job, but not like this, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. It's still fun from time to time. Brett Phillips makes it fun, or if sure. you want to roll Albert Pujols out there in his final season and give him a chance to pitch, or Yadier Molina. Sure, I'm up for that kind of thing. Sure. But yes, it's gotten to be too much. And I think it is probably most galling when the margin is is narrower. Right. So this will at least eliminate some of the, the closer games when it's used, when at least it's not as incomprehensible that there could be a comeback. And we've had the conversation about whether there should just be forfeits before, but I'm fine with just throwing pitchers out there the way that they used to. And a lot of my objections to these things, shortening games or having some measure to restrict position player pitching because uh, teams have stopped using actual pitchers. Just, you know, structure your 
team and your pitcher right. usage a little bit differently to right. prepare for these eventualities. You know what you're getting into, so prepare yourself. And yep. I know that we've moved away from that, and hopefully we're moving back toward that with limits on pitchers that you can have on the active roster. But, you know, you got to plan ahead a little bit from time to time. And I, I think probably what makes it more annoying for people is that position player pitchers now they were semi-successful by position They're player so pitchers. Bad now. Yeah, I mean, early last year, they were actually doing surprisingly well, which was weird, but they don't really make much no. of an effort anymore because I think we've opened up the pool of position player pitchers to almost anyone at this point. You don't even have to right. fake throwing hard. It's right. not like we're going to only use guys who can throw in the high 80s or something. So now people are just lobbing the ball in there, which, you know, sometimes uh, people can have some fun with it. But when it's not Zach Granke throwing a slow curve, it's just someone maxing out at 55 or something. It's just it's not that entertaining to watch. And, and nothing's going to be super entertaining to watch in a blowout, of course, but it does almost get to the point where it's like, are we making a mockery of the game here? Which sounds very get off my lawn-ish, but I think a lot of people have gotten to that point with the position player pitching. I have two thoughts here. The first of which is that you're absolutely right. Like the bar has has been lowered to the point of being near the floor. It feels like now they're like, did you at one point in high school throw a competitive <laughs> inning? Well, <laughs> guess what? You get to get up on the mound. And, and that's, you know, we railed against pitchers hitting and this is i think actually more insulting because <laughs> you know it's 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 so far removed from what we actually know pitching to be and i would imagine ben try this on for a size i feel like we should be if the conditions are right and people are open-minded this feels to me like we could be entering like the golden era of the long reliever right because mm. you know how different are long relievers than starters these days? Right, yeah. You know, and I am i don't want to cannibalize like a zombie would, you know, innings that should be going to starters, but it feels like the very obvious solution to this problem is for teams to have respect for the multi-inning reliever again and to say, mm -hmm. hey, you can go three you know and mm -hmm. we're gonna we're gonna prioritize having one of you on the roster because it is a useful position to f have us position to field is a little weird as a way of describing a pitcher but like that's an important role for us to like populate in our bullpen and so we should you know prioritize having a guy on the roster who's really like a understood traditional long reliever and if you you know opt not to do that I don't want guys to get hurt, and I think we always have to, you know, be mindful when we're talking about usage. What are we What are we potentially opening the door to in terms of guys getting overused? But I'm okay with there being a little bit of a, like, fatigue penalty on a bullpen that, you know, the team just doesn't plan for the inevitability where they're going to want a guy to, like, throw a couple in a meaningless game. I think mm -hmm. it's okay for there to be a, a little penalty there, and we need to make sure it's dialed in right, but this strikes me as fine. Agreed. All right, so we have a preview pod today. Later in the episode, we're going to be talking to Levi Weaver of The Athletic about the Texas Rangers. Before Levi, we'll be talking to Mandy Bell of MLB.com about the Cleveland Guardians. 
Before we do a couple other quick things, so we're in the point of the offseason where the transactions mostly aren't super interesting, and also we don't necessarily have to dedicate banter time to them because we're going to get to those teams sometime soon in our preview series. So if you wanted to hear us talk about David Peralta to the Dodgers or a Christian Javier Bo Bichette extension, we'll be talking about those teams in depth sometime soon. But every now and then there's one that catches my eye, like the Darvish extension did last time. Explain to me how Andrew Chafin gets a one-year $6.5 million deal from the Diamondbacks going back to his old team. Yeah. Andrew Chafin is good. Andrew Chafin right? is good. Yeah. He is good. He's and been good. not just good. because of the mustache. No, that's part of it, but also the stats and the performance, which could be related to the mustache, but even independent of that. Yeah. He's basically been pretty solid every season except 2020, which was 2020. And over the past two seasons, he is actually, among left-handed relievers, the highest war guy just among lefty relievers who have not started a game. Actually, he's second. It's it's Josh Hader, <laughs> who's a, a pretty famous pitcher. And then it's Andrew Chafin. This is right. according to Baseball Reference War. And I think Andrew Chafin probably expected to get more than he got here because he opted out of an option with the Tigers for another year and $6.5 million, And that's exactly what he ended up getting from the Diamondbacks. But why is what I'm wondering. I, I know that the three batter minimum has uh, made it tougher times for some lefty specialist, but he's not really a lefty specialist. He can get righties out too. And he's been quite effective both recently and and over the long term. So I don't know what it is. There wasn't like a glut of lefty relievers out there. There was like Taylor Rogers and Matt Strom and, and those guys got more money. But why was there not a bigger deal out there for Andrew Chafin? No, it's very strange. And and Ben, I don't want to correct you, but I'm going to correct you a little bit. Like mm-hmm. he he could earn 6.5 million this year, but he but that's dependent on an additional million dollars in playing time bonuses. Uh-huh. I think his actual okay. underlying deal is for 5.5 million, huh. which is a bummer because he declined a player option for this right, year yes. to stay in Detroit and he would have gotten 6.5, you know, no matter mm-hmm. how many innings he pitched. So that's too bad. I don't know. It's really flummoxing. I mean, I know that he, you know, if you're thinking about a guy who's like going to blow him away with velocity, that's right. not that's not Andrew Chafin. That's not no. his game, right? Mm-hmm. But he is quite effective and he's, you know, been able to be effective against hitters of both handedness. So I find myself similarly flummoxed. I feel like um, the reliever market's always kind of weird. And in a year where it felt like everyone was getting a huge guarantee, there was still weirdness and fluctuation in the reliever market. And it wasn't all the guys that I I thought would get, you know, money who got Mm -hmm. money, like, or at least got more money than, than like, Craig Kimbrell. Would you really rather have Craig Kimbrell for $10 million or would you rather have Andrew Chafin? I mean, I realize, again, like, he's a lefty, but, 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 like, yeah, I'm, a, I'm here just, to tell you I'm surprised by that. Yeah, no, he projects better than yeah. other guys who got more money, including Kimbrell, David Robertson. There was a, a table of guys like that yeah. in the Fancrafts analysis yes. by Leo Morgenstern that yes, wrote a included nice piece. others uh, who do not project as highly as Andrew Chafin. So, yeah, that was a weird one. Anyway, weird one. good get by the Diamondbacks, I guess, but perplexing from Andrew Chafin's perspective. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is how do you feel about – Derek Jeter becoming more of a public-facing figure again. Because we found out 
on Super Bowl Sunday that Derek Jeter will be in the booth. Yeah. He will be part of the Fox uh, pregame and possibly postgame MLB coverage in 2023, which I think is amusing in the sense that he is joining A-Rod. And I know it, it seems like from afar they have patched things up to some extent, but I guess there's potential for awkwardness between A-Rod and Jeter, which might make for good viewing. But beyond that, Derek Jeter, and I grew up a Yankees fan, and I watched all of Derek Jeter's career and certainly appreciated him as a player. Not someone I I felt like I needed to hear from more, just because he's never been very forthcoming, and he continues not to be. I mean, there may very well be an inner Derek Jeter who is uh, very funny and, you know, like, I think he's a smart guy, and and I think he maybe has a sense of humor, but he just, he doesn't really (laughs) let it out, you know? He's always just very careful and, and watches his words, which is not really what you want. Like, case in point, he was asked to make a Super Bowl prediction, right, as part of his introduction here. And he just hemmed and hawed and he said, look, it's kind of hard for me to ever pick against Patrick Mahomes because, you know, we played against his dad. So uh, I'm hoping for a good game. I'm trying to be politically correct here. That's not what you necessarily want from a broadcaster, but that's what you're going to get from Derek Jeter. And I guess it's kind of in the same category as Tom Brady becoming a a lead NFL analyst, right? Mm -hmm. Because who has ever really heard Tom Brady and thought, I want to hear more of this man? I mean, I know that they're they're both uh, golden men, right? And they're very famous. And Brady probably has uh, more, more weirdness in his background than Jeter does. But both of them have in common. They're just very measured in their comments and try not to say anything very revealing or controversial. And that just doesn't seem like it's a, a great formula for, yeah, let's get this guy on mic again. So I didn't mind necessarily that Derek Jeter was kind of quiet when he was working for the Marlins, right? And since he left the Marlins, he's kind of had a little coming out party again and we're inundated in Derek Jeter content and documentaries and now he's going to be a broadcaster. Like, I guess it's good for baseball in the sense that he is one of the more recognizable baseball figures and is probably still like the most famous baseball player in the country, even though he hasn't played for several years at that point. So maybe it's good in that sense, but I just, I don't know that it's going to be compelling content. Perhaps he'll surprise me. Were you watching this live, Ben? <laughs> no, I was not watching live. <laughs> I asked I asked the question knowing the answer. Yeah. I don't need more Derek Jeter. And I, I want to be careful that like, you know, if if Derek Jeter is your guy, like I'm happy mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I need that. I mean, I, I suppose that his recent front office experience makes it marginally more interesting to me because he won't be reliant purely on like when I was a player, which mm-hmm. was a while ago, you know, mm-hmm. and a lot is different now. So I think that there is a recent experience on his resume that is perhaps interesting, mm-hmm. but no, like, I think it's fine for us to hear from, from new folks, you know? And I get the importance he has in the sport, the place he occupies in sort of the baseball pantheon makes him, I would imagine, very appealing to Fox. And he is potentially a good foil to A-Rod. But I also don't know that I need more A-Rod. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's that part of it, too. Yeah, it's uh, he has interesting experiences. Sure, yeah, definitely. I just 100%. I don't know that that he is willing or able to share them in an interesting way because he right. just doesn't have a history of doing that. Maybe yeah. he'll loosen up. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, 
those uh, Fox uh, pregame shows, uh, they've been fun at times, like when it was Kevin Burkhardt and A-Rod, like early on before everyone right. got sort of sick of A-Rod the in the booth. The hardware and, days. Yeah, Frank Thomas and David Ortiz. I mean, like, you know, Pedro. I mean, yeah, those guys can be fun. I just, maybe Jeter can hang with them. Maybe he can loosen up. I hope he can. Right. You know, yeah. I feel like there are some jokes that could be made about his, you know, past comfort, like uh, ranging. But um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I won't make them because they're cheap, Ben. You know, yeah. they're beneath us. They're not no. what the people have come to expect from the preeminent Mushroom Zombie podcasts, <laughs> you know? Right. I was thinking baseball's uh, kind of lucky, I think, compared to other sports in the sense that baseball's preeminent newsbreakers are also really respected journalists and and feature writers even to today. Because, you know, in, in other sports, I mean, in NBA, it's all about Woj and Shams, right? And in the NFL, right. it's all about Adam Schefter. And yeah. those guys, at least these days, are, are largely about just, can I tweet out this news that's right. about to be released by the team in five minutes anyway, right? right? And then sometimes in their rush to do that, they will sort of embarrass themselves in the way that they report and phrase things, right? <laughs> but in baseball, you certainly have newsbreakers uh, who are known for some wayward tweets at times. But I would say that the leading newsbreakers, Passan and Rosenthal in right. some order, those guys are, are very respected journalists, I would say. And to their credit, they still really write regularly. I mean, they write features and profiles and notes columns and report on things and argue things. And they're very readable and, and compelling. Like, for all I know, Jeff Passan could have retired his his pen, basically, once he got to ESPN and just broken news. But he hasn't done that. He still right. writes at length and well. And I just appreciate that, you know, yeah. like in, in baseball, maybe it's just a function of baseball not being as huge as the NFL, certainly. Right. And maybe it's just not quite as lucrative to be an MLB newsbreaker as it is to be an NFL or even NBA newsbreaker. Or maybe it's the rich literary tradition of baseball. I don't know what it is, but it is kind of nice that the baseball newsbreakers, you know, at least the leading ones, I would say. They really write the way that they always did. They haven't just kind of uh, become tweeters who break news just a minute before we would have known it anyway. Yeah, I think that it has a more consistent and ongoing tradition of it being, you know, a written endeavor yeah. in a way that isn't just like, hey, you write tweets, though. You know, it's not <laughs> just that, thankfully. Yeah. Lastly, you probably saw the tweet, I think it was maybe reported by Mike Curdo, that the AAA robot umpire schedule for 2023 came out. So we thought, or at least it was implied by previous reporting, that maybe we would have like a half season of full robot umps and then a half season of the challenge system. It turns out it's actually going to be split on a weekly basis. So Monday through Thursday, it's going to be full robot umps, no challenging. And then weekends, it's going to be human umps calling the pitches with the challenge system. So many people made jokes about the robots unionizing and negotiating a three-day weekend, <laughs> et cetera. But it is kind of interesting that it's switching just from one day to the next. It's not going to be like, let's flip the switch at the all-star break and do something different. I guess in a sense, maybe it it gives you a more scientific read on how this affects the game because these things will be happening sort of concurrently. But it would be a bit of an adjustment, I would think, to to just change. Oh, it's a Friday. It's a Saturday. I guess that means it's it's a challenge day, right? Or human umps. Like, well, I can't just kind of let the robot do the work today. I have to make the calls. It would be a bit of a mental adjustment, I would imagine. 
I have two thoughts on this. The first is that shifting the the challenge system to the weekend. I got that right, right? The challenge system is a weekend endeavor. Correct. When it'll be in front of more people, I'm going to choose to be optimistic that this means that it is secretly, sneakily the preferred method of dealing with the mm. bad call ends an important game problem. Because yeah, more fans in the stands on the weekend. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. So like, okay. So, you know, you you, you picking up what I'm putting down. I yeah. think that this is, I'm I'm going to be optimistic about it because, you know, we need some good news after being defeated by our zombie overlords. Mm-hmm. And so there's that piece of it. And then the other thing is if I were a player dev person, I would hate this. <laughs> yeah. I would find this so frustrating. And I, I understand that we have to test this stuff somewhere and no one has listened to us about Lab League. <laughs> mm-hmm. For whatever reason, <laughs> but you know, the herky jerky nature of this stuff would make me feel very frustrated if I were a player dev person. And, you know, obviously, were I a player, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's like a are there gonna be guys who just like see the robozone a lot more or a lot less because of this? Yeah, I guess potentially. Potentially on when you play. Yeah. So I don't I don't know. I do want to share something I came across, which is uh, umpiring related. Now, Joshian made the point because, uh, as I understand it, there was kind of a controversial call in the big game, as they call it. And, so, uh... Ben, <laughs> you know, here's the thing about it. The call mm-hmm. was right. Yes. But also, it didn't have a sense of the moment. You know, it didn't. It isn't what you want. Now, I say that. Having gone into the game hoping that the Eagles would win. So, mm-hmm. you know, that is biasing my perception ever so slightly, perhaps. Yeah. It Joe made the case that he wants the call to be made the way that it would at any other time, that the idea that you don't want the ref or the umpire making the decisive call in that moment. Yes. That you actually should want them making the kind of call that they would normally make or else, in a sense, the ref or the umpire is actually becoming a factor at that time because they're calling the game differently than they would. I could go either way on that. I certainly understand your perspective there. But he also made the case that maybe we actually have it a bit better in baseball because there are at least remedies for missed calls. Like in football, just so much of it is a judgment call that it's almost impossible to imagine getting all those calls correct. Like in baseball, you know, we could maybe have a great accurate robot zone and we have replay review and often it's kind of bang, bang and it's yes or no, right? Whereas something like holding, it's just so subjective, right? And there are certainly some subjective baseball calls too, but a lot of them are a little more clear cut. Anyway, that wasn't the point I wanted to make. The point I wanted to make is that I came across the suggestion from 1937 When I was reading about the great former player Max Bishop, whose nickname was Camera Eye, which is a great nickname, and if you haven't looked up Max Bishop, listener, do yourself a favor and do maybe one of the most selective hitters ever, incredible walk rates without having great power, just an amazing sense of the strike zone, almost uncanny, and it It's almost like an effectively wild hypothetical type, like, could you influence umpires uh, just by having some magical ability? Because it's really extraordinary that he walked as often as he did without being able to back it up with power threats. But while I was reading about Camera Eye, I came across this article that mentioned Camera Eye from September 1937. And this is from the Cass County Democrat Missourian, although it's citing a sporting news piece. 
It says, C.E. McBride of the Kansas City Star has made a suggestion that would do baseball more good than any other change that has been made in many years. Every baseball fan should send Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis a vote for the McBride idea. The following lines are from a recent edition of the Sporting News. With the camera being employed on racetracks to determine close finishes, C.E. McBride, sports editor of the Kansas City Star, suggests its use in baseball to check up on the umpires. Quote, when the showmen of baseball go looking for innovations to lend color to the game, why don't they hit on the idea of establishing a camera eye off the coast of first base, queries McBride. On close decisions, the film could be quickly developed and given to the umpires and rival managers, leave out the rival managers if you wish, for study. There is many a decision at first base close enough for a photographic finish. So the idea was that if there was a close play at first, you'd take a picture somehow, you'd snap a picture, it would be like an automatic camera setup the way that they had recently started using it, racetracks, and then you would rush the footage off to the dark room and, you know, sift it through the, <laughs> the liquid and, and have the red lights and everything, and then rush the print back to the field, and then having developed the <laughs> footage, you could then show everyone the printout and say, aha, the runner was actually safe. I was trying to look up how long that would take exactly in the mid-1930s when they had just started to develop color photography that was widely available. I guess you wouldn't need that for this. But I think they could actually really rush the development and have it done in 10 to 15 minutes. So <laughs> that's that's the fastest they could do. We complain about some long replay review periods now. But imagine if a close play at first, someone snaps a picture, they rush it off to the dark room, and then in 15 minutes, they come back with the printout and everyone just sort of stands around until then. How would that be for the spectator experience, do you think? I think there'd be there'd be complaints, you know, there might be letters <laughs> to the editor penned. I <laughs> mm-hmm. think we'd hear about yeah. it, you know. Yeah, right. And, and this editor was suggesting that was the best possible thing right. that could be done for baseball. Right. Which, again, I'm a replay review defender, you know, and yeah, I, I know people don't love it and, and think it's overapplied or it takes too long. But back then, when they didn't have the option... At least one person was suggesting that we should just have a camera set up and go rush off and develop the footage and bring it back. That's how important it was to get those crucial calls right. So I think we're sort of spoiled now. You know, I know in football, people get tired of uh, trying to figure out was that technically a catch or not. But I think in baseball, if replay review went away or was severely curtailed, we would miss it. We've uh, become so accustomed to not getting egregious calls wrong, at least on the bases. Well, and I think, you know, you can't you can't have folks at home knowing a call is obviously wrong and have no remedy for for undoing it. As soon as we got high def TV, Mm -hmm. you know, then it was over. You had to have it before you could hide mistakes in all those pixels. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Can't do that anymore, Ben. We can see those clear as day. Mm hmm. All right, it is team preview time. So we're going to do Guardians first and then Rangers second. The Frangraphs depth charts projections currently have them quite close. Mm-hmm. The Guardians are projected for a 514 winning percentage, which is about 83 wins. The Rangers nipping on their heels at 509, which is about 82 wins. And that's why they are paired together today. So we will bring you Guardians first with Mandy, and then Levi will be here to talk about the Texas Rangers. But let's take a quick break and we'll be back with Mandy in a moment. If it hadn't been for Mandy, her promise up above me, well I wouldn't be here at all. 
It is time for our Cleveland Guardians preview, and we are joined by Mandy Bell, who covers the Guardians for MLB.com and has recently, very, very recently, arrived in Arizona for (laughs) Guardians spring training, has just touched down and run back to the hotel to talk to us about the Guardians. So thank you, Mandy, and uh, welcome to Arizona. I mean, I'm not in Arizona. Meg is, so I don't know if I can welcome you, but (laughs) glad you arrived. Hey, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) So I want to talk a little bit about the Guardians' identity last year because they established themselves as an expectation-surpassing team and a young team and a fun team. I think we all kind of got on the Guardians' bandwagon a bit, and they were sort of a, a throwback pitching and defense and contact kind of club. I wanted to ask how much of at least the the contact part was intentional and how much was just sort of making the best of their circumstances because it wasn't a great hitting team. It was good enough to win the division and get to the playoffs, but was it sort of uh, let's zig where everyone's zagging and they're all going toward three true outcomes and we're going to be the team that puts the ball in play? You know, they went from 20th in contact rate in 2021 to best by a lot in 2023. So was that kind of a conscious change or was it just these are the personnel we happen to have on hand and this is the best lineup we can roll out there and just having Stephen Kwan alone will raise your contact rate considerably? I'd say maybe a mix of both. I mean, they they have a, well, last year was a new hitting coach and Chris Valeka, and I know they wanted to make some changes, and his approach was, was sort of helping guide in that direction, but I think largely it was these were the types of hitters that they had uh, to turn to, and because of the lockout last year, they didn't really have an offseason to try to make many moves, and the cram time that they had, they were only able to really do bring in Luke Maley, the backup catcher at that point, so it's not like there was a lot of offensive answers solved, and so they decided to just stick with the guys that they knew in their, in their farm system, and somehow it worked out for them. I don't think anyone <laughs> was expecting it to work out the way that it did, but I, I mean, I think it was... Tito basically said it best at the beginning of the season saying, we're going to try to maximize what we can do with what we have. And I'm not going to sit here and preach for guys to be hitting home runs because I know that's not what we have. And what we're, what we have is a, a scrappy team that can get base hits here and there and can wreak havoc on the bases. And that's what we're going to try to capitalize on. And he turned to Jose Ramirez to set that tone and sort of worked out for them. So uh, (laughs) I don't know if it can be duplicated, but it was something that was fun for 2022. Yeah, because you might have thought, you know, the Guardians uh, ownership always wants to keep the payroll down and maybe you can uh, cheap out. You could get more bang for your buck just going for contact guys or or not getting that much bang. I guess that was part of the problem, but (laughs) at least getting guys who can hit for high averages. But there wasn't just one mold necessarily of Guardians player because, for example, Oscar Gonzalez, who came up along with Quan last year, Gonzalez, he had a fairly high contact rate, actually, and didn't strike out a ton by modern standards, but a very different type of hitter than Stephen Kwan is. I mean, one is a a free swinger and one is almost a non-swinger. So it's not like there is uh, only one type of internal Guardians-developed hitter. And also they signed Mike Zunino. So (laughs) I guess they're not just necessarily locked into one profile. They're not. They're definitely not. And Oscar Gonzalez was tremendously 
better and different than advertised uh, last year. I mean, you look at his minor league numbers and you're expecting a guy who has no plate discipline, uh, strikes out a ton and he actually handled himself pretty well in his transition to the big leagues. But I think that there's some skepticism, for lack of a better term, maybe, for whether that's legit. Does that stick? Is that mm-hmm. something that just sort of happened in 2022 and he will, will revert back into that boomer bust type of hitter? But I think it was definitely enough for everyone to have the optimism that that's the kind of player that he can be and can continue to be. But yeah, you bring in Mike Zunino. They want guys that can bring that quick one swing and you get three runs because I think for Terry Francona's blood pressure, I think that would be very helpful. So they're definitely not trying to just stick to that type of profile. It strikes me that the Guardians have a couple of guys where we're still trying to figure out exactly what version of them we're likely to see going forward. I mean, we can talk about like the rookie version of that to see if, you know, Stephen Kwan is going to continue to produce like he did. But I think the place I want to start is with Andres Jimenez, who, you know, I think there were a lot of people in Cleveland and beyond who had sort of bad feelings about the Lindor trade. And I don't want to say that anyone can wipe all of that away. But when you put up a six win season and you post a 140 WRC plus, you're at least going to you know, give people a break from their longing feelings. That was something of a departure from what we had seen from Jimenez in the past. So what version of him do you think we're going to get in 2023? He definitely seems to have wiped it away. I will uh, concur on that because, I mean, (laughs) Guardians fans are just in love with uh, Andre Jimenez and what he's been able to do. So many fans immediately just seeing what Jimenez could do during spring training when he first came over and what Ahmed Rosario could do offensively once he moved to shortstop and was comfortable again defensively. Everyone was ready to say that, all right, Cleveland won the trade. Like Fans were all in on this. I think Jimenez is sort of just getting started. It it doesn't seem like he's going to be somebody – who steps back from what he's already established. He's not a second baseman. He's a shortstop. And he's figured out that, okay, put me wherever you want and I'll be a gold glover. He's absolutely incredible to watch defensively. Um, And he's just been able, last year especially, was a rock for this lineup. And I think it's just, he seems like someone who has all of the basic maybe tools and what you need for a foundation to be able to build upon what he started in 2022. I know he's been up in the majors for a few years now, at least at times, but this really seems to have started his, okay, I'm established. I'm here for the long haul. And it just seems like he can build on that. He just does not give off the indication that he's going to slide at all, which is really impressive considering the bar he's set for himself. Another cornerstone who's there for the long haul, Jose Ramirez, had another fantastic season, started out even better than it ended. He ended up with yet another MVP caliber kind of stat line. Mm -hmm. But early on in the season, it it looked like he was going to be the one to give Judge and Otani a, a run for their money. But of course, he was hampered by an injury and then he had thumb surgery right after the season. So he's supposed to be ready, right? I mean, are there any lingering concerns about that? And how did that affect him as he was playing through that injury? I mean, I'm sure we'll find out more as we start getting more and more availability as guys start rolling in this week. But my guess is that there's zero concern. Last year was told in the middle of June when this happened that he should have gotten surgery right then. And 
he went to Terry Francona and said, not only am I not getting surgery, but I'm going to be in the lineup tonight. So he was not he was not even debating that. He wanted to make sure that he was going to be there for his team. And he was, but he definitely wasn't the same hitter. You think back to the beginning of the season last year, his RBI total was insane. I, he was giving Judge a run for his money every step of the way. Mm-hmm. And... That was enjoyable to watch. It was it was really fun. He was one of the best hitters in the league, and all of a sudden it came basically to a crashing halt right around that same time. I don't think there's any coincidence. If you look at his splits from before mid-June and after mid-June, it's drastically different. So I think with a healthy Jose Ramirez and then also with a threat like Josh Bell behind him in the lineup to protect him more than what they had with Fran Mel Reyes to start the beginning of last year, which ended up being a bust, and then mixing up like Josh Naylor, Oscar Gonzalez, there was never truly a threat like consistently behind him. So I think if you have Josh Bell in there and he's hitting decently, that could really help Jose be an even better version of himself, which I guess seems impossible to imagine. <laughs> right. So it wasn't the most active offseason for the Guardians. It was maybe more active than last offseason. It would have been hard to be less active than that. And as it turned out, they were somewhat vindicated in that they had a lot of internal replacements and promotions and had, what, 17 rookies come up and a lot of them played well, so they were able to fill some holes internally, but not all of them. And I guess the big free agent addition this winter was Josh Bell, who gives them maybe more of the offensive weapon that they didn't have so much in the lineup last year, but also kind of fits the Guardians mold to the extent that there is one a little bit. So Tell us uh, how they set their minds on Josh Bell, who has been somewhat volatile and and mercurial as a hitter, right, up and down. So what do they hope to get out of him and and what's the confidence that they will get that? I mean, for the offseason, this was the expectations were so low because of what we've seen the last few years. It wasn't even just last year of what they've done. And so you knew going into the winter of what they needed to do, but you just had that thought in the back of your mind like, is it really going to happen? Because you're just so used to what you've seen the last few years. So Josh Bell was a big signing for them. And they do have a lot of expectations for him because they need a threat. They need some sort of power threat in this lineup. They think it can be him. They're hoping and he's hoping obviously for himself and he seems confident that he can get back to this. That season that he had in 2019, those numbers were unreal. And so if you can have power or at least the threat of that power that can be there if you hang a breaking pitch or whatever it may be that can go do wonders for this lineup to at least have a guy who can take it out of the park and tie games up quickly give them a nice little cushion lead with one swing of the bat something that they were missing last year and they were hoping Fran Reyes could do and then like I said earlier it could really provide some stability for Jose Ramirez allow him to see better pitching allow him to have better results but they I think they're just looking for him to finally be that threat that they've been trying to figure out who can fill to just have some sort of power in this lineup because it's just been it's been missing for it wasn't just last year it's been the last few years that they've just they have not had that threat and so yes he's had 
some difficult times, especially in the second half of these seasons. It always seems like he gets off to a good start, but then he tapers off as the year goes on. But he's talked already in the few meetings that we've had with him about how he just so focused on trying to have a full, consistent year. He knows it. There's no secrets. And uh, maybe him joining a young team like this with their hitting approach that they have, maybe that can finally be the answer for him to put it all together. So last year for the Guardians, Austin Hedges posted a 42 WRC+, plus, which isn't <laughs> a number you see a lot from a guy who plays 105 games and not just 338 plate appearances. He is now a Padre. We've already mentioned that Mike Zanino is a Guardian, although his season last year was obviously compromised by injury. But what I'm curious about is the future of the catching position in Cleveland and where the club sees Bo Naylor, is he likely to break camp with the club on opening day? And what do you see his trajectory being this year? And that's the crazy part. Like we're going into spring training and it seems like the biggest storyline is who's going to be the backup catcher, which yeah. seems ridiculous <laughs> to say that that's one of the biggest storylines, but it is. And, you know, it, it seems like their goal is to make sure that Bo Naylor starts the year in AAA. They want to make sure that he's playing consistently. He only had half of a season, if that, in AAA last year and I mean, throughout his entire minor league career. And so they want to get him more reps there and then more consistent reps in general. They don't want him coming up and then Zunino gets the bulk of the playing time and Naylor's only working in every so often. They want to make sure that he's ready to go and that he's playing. Now, sure, I'm sure everyone can think about service time and you start thinking about what that can factor in as well. So I'm sure that's something that everyone's thinking about too, but they do want him to play consistently. And so the goal would be to have him start in AAA. The only way I see that not happening is if somehow Zanino is still recovering from that thoracic outlet syndrome surgery that he had last summer. So if he's still struggling and, and there's any indication that he's hurt at all, I think Bo Naylor gets thrown into the fire and just tries to figure it out from day one. But outside of that, I think Mike Zanino is going to be the guy and then maybe they just have one of their non-roster invite catchers that they have on on, on the in-camp this week. And obviously all spring, one of them will probably make the the roster for the backup spot until they do call up Bo Naylor and then those guys can d- get DFA'd. But I think the plan is eventually, clearly, to ha- pass the baton off to Naylor. And Zunino has already expressed how excited he is to sort of serve as a mentor to him. So that was pretty cool to hear him say. What was the vibe of that clubhouse like last year? Because the team was so young, and it's very rare for a team that's so young to be so successful. The Guardians did both at the same time and also have one of the best farm systems in the game. So that's a a pretty good trio there of things that you can characterize that organization with. But sometimes with a young team, you hear that you know guys aren't fully ready or they have lessons to learn or they feel overmatched. And then other times you hear they're just so so young and exposed to this the first time and and they don't even know you know how hard it can be and so they're just uh, having fun out there so it really depends on the team and i imagine that the guardians were having a lot of fun given how often they were winning but what was it like to just have so many players who were there for the first time and having success or players who were still young and were making major strides at the same time 
It was like a kid's birthday party every single day. It uh-huh. was a group of guys in one corner playing Nerf basketball, and they put tape down on the carpet in the clubhouse and made their own court. And a guys in other corners just screaming at each other for no reason, out of fun, and just making fun of each other and laughing out as loud as you possibly can. Uh, I mean, it's just it was it was chaos, but it was a fun chaos. Like these. They were like, well, everyone's counting us out. We don't really know any better other than to think, why can't we? So why can't we? And that's exactly the approach they took. And that's why so many games came down to one run wins. So many games were decided in what seemed like the eighth or ninth inning or even in extras. They always were coming back because they just thought, why not? Why can't we? And that same attitude just translated from when they were playing games pregame or postgame. I mean, postgame, you're so used to guys packing up their stuff and getting out of there immediately. By the time the media gets in there after talking with the manager, most of the players are already starting to move out of the room. Well, this past year, everyone was still there. Not only were they still there, they hadn't even gotten changed yet because they're still playing their three-on-three matchup over at the Nerf basketball hoop because they just didn't want to go home. They loved it. It just seemed like they were having the time of their lives, and I think that showed a lot out on the field. One of those young guys on the pitching side who I think really dazzled last year and, you know... His performance was great, but seeing that performance over 191 innings was perhaps even more impressive. I'm talking about Tristan McKenzie. Where is he going into the year? What are your expectations for him? He he took such a, a profound leap. He was worth almost four wins, and he had an ERA in the twos and a FIP in the threes. Like He was just really superlative last year. So what do you expect from him? It seemed like the writing was on the wall for him. He truly just, he's so level-headed that even whenever he was having the struggles that he had in 2021, where he the walk rates were insanely high, he couldn't command anything, he had to keep going back down to mi- the minors and coming back up and trying to work through it. By the end of the season, he figured it out, and you got to see the taste of what he could be and obviously last year he put that all together we all sort of knew why he was such a highly regarded prospect for so long despite the injuries that he went through as a minor leaguer everyone had the same expectation for him regardless of he could be something special and I think he proved it and I think he sort of just set the foundation sort of like how Quan or Jimenez has done as well where okay this is what he can do and now he's going to figure out a way to trump that in some sort of fashion and he's so level-headed he's down to earth he understands how to be really critical of himself but not in a way that's beating himself up he can learn from things really quickly it seems like he's so mature for his age and he already seems like he's like a veteran presence in the clubhouse which doesn't take much if you had one like season of experience you're a veteran in that clubhouse but (laughs) He took the role on very, very well, um, to say the least. And so it just seems like he's the type of guy who would go into an offseason and say, I'm not going to try to go do anything crazy. I'm going to look at some of my weaknesses from this past year and work on them a little bit. But I know I can pitch here. I know I can be successful here. And I'm just going to try to get better at all the things that I was already good at. And so he just seems like he has the makeup of someone who could turn into a really, really great pitcher for a consistent period rather than just having one breakout year. 
We're accustomed to talking about the Guardians starting rotation as a strength, and they continually find ways to develop guys and get more out of them than people expect. But we're going to be talking about the Rangers later in this episode, and (laughs) they're the team that went out and splurged on their starting rotation and has a really strong projection, whereas the Guardians are in the bottom half of teams, according to the Fangraphs depth chart. So you have McKenzie and you have Bieber, who found a way to excel despite diminished velocity and was great as the season went on. But Behind those guys, maybe more question marks and also some uncertainty about the depth after the top five. So how do you see that shaking out? Do you think that they'll be able to pull some more aces out of their sleeves somehow? Seems like they somehow figure that out regardless of whether we're expecting it or not. (laughs) So at this point, I've learned never to count anyone out because somehow it comes out of a magician's hat and they figure (laughs) it out. But it seems like Bieber... Uh, Mackenzie, Quantrill are a solid three. But beyond that, with Plesak and Savali, one, can they stay healthy? Savali has shown now that he has a tendency of getting hurt and getting these small nagging injuries that prevent him from consistently taking the ball every five days. So Plesak, can he get back to the way that we had seen him in 2020? It was a shortened season, obviously, a little bit different, hard to compare to, but he was really excellent. He seemed like he built from his rookie year in 19 and he was taking step forward but now it seems like he's not as consistent not sure which direction he's going to go in he obviously keeps running into weird injuries as well so those two are question marks and if those two aren't the answer you have a plethora of guys that look like they could be the next ones up but you just don't know what the pecking order is and so um, another thing to watch during camp is going to be (laughs) Aside from the exhilarating backup catcher spot, you also have (laughs) the starting pitching depth of where do they go if these aren't the answers. So, Mm -hmm. you know, look at guys like I think Cody Morris could be somebody who's high up on their list because he was someone who came off the injured list after he was done with his rehab stint. He came up and joined the Guardians immediately. He was out in the bullpen because he didn't have enough time to ramp up as a starter. But I think they think really highly of him. He could be someone who's a six guy ready to go. But you also have Connor Pilkington, Xavier Curry. You have so many guys that they saw last year because every single person in their farm system, it seemed like, made their debut. So they were able to see so many different pitchers. And I think spring training this year will help them figure out that pecking order. I don't know if Daniel Espino is going to be somebody who ends up being in that mix towards the end of the season if he can stay healthy. Um, but that's going to be things that are going to be fun to watch develop throughout the season. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Espino and just see where, at least from a health perspective, the org views him as being. Because I know that, you know, as soon as we put a pitcher in our top 100, he has to get hurt. It's like a law of the universe or <laughs> of something. Course, of course. So where where is he health-wise right now? It seems like they think he's on track to be okay, but they said that all last year and all of a sudden he continued to have this same thing prolonged to the point that he wasn't able to pitch. So we'll get a better idea when we get into camp, when we start talking to Francona every single day, when all of this continues to get closer and closer to opening day, I think we'll have a much better picture of where he actually is. But the vibe seems to be they think he's going to be back this year and be healthy and be able to pitch the way that they would have liked him to last season. 
Another thing the Guardians had in common with our next team, Texas, is, you know, good base running team, speedy, lots of stolen bases. And this might be another thing you get a clearer picture on once camp really gets going. But do you think that they will be aggressive in taking advantage of some of the new rules, whether it be bigger bases or the pickoff attempt rule? Are they in a good position to push the envelope with the personnel that they have? Yeah, for sure. I mean, they were that team last year before these types of things were implemented. So Mm -hmm. I think this can only work in their favor. They have guys that have speed. They have Jimenez, uh, Straw, and Quan are the three fast guys. But then you have Jose Ramirez, who might not be the same like sprint speed-wise, but is one of the most intelligent base runners in the majors and figures out the perfect balance of being aggressive in the safest way possible. So I, I think it's going to be something that, especially for those four guys, can only work in Cleveland's favor. And so if you're having guys running all over the place, I mean, last year you saw how often they went first to third. It just seems like base stealing is going to be up obviously across the league, but I think specifically for the Guardians, they have really the target audience for this. I know that, you know, the Guardians once again have enviable depth in their farm system. They have a couple of guys toward the top who seem like they're going to be impact big leaguers, but I'm curious, you know, as they go through the year and potentially have to address, you know, whether it's, you know, finding another starter or just the the usual attrition you get on the big league roster, are there guys beyond sort of the top of that system, the Espinos, the Nailers, the Rokios, the other Logan Allen, who <laughs> are viewed as sort of will not move don't even think about asking for them in trade prospects. Are there other guys who you get the sense they're particularly high on? The biggest thing with Cleveland is that they never say that anyone is untouchable. Everyone is able to have a conversation. Now, other guys, some guys would cost just way too much that any team would ever give up. And that to Cleveland is untouchable, but they listen to every single thing, which is why they're nonstop working, which is why their front office has figured out ways to get crafty in some of these trades that they've been able to make that have turned out when people maybe weren't expecting it to turn out that way. I would say that as close as you get to untouchable, it seems like Gavin Williams and Daniel Espino have to be the two that you just want to get to the big leagues. You want to see them here. But the big question mark for me is like, is a guy like Brian Rocchio untouchable because of all the middle infielders that they have? Right. They at least got rid of Owen Miller, which was part of that process. And I don't say that as a slight to Owen Miller. I say that as they have too many middle infielders who are ready for the big leagues that have no home. And so um, you have Tyler Freeman, Gabriel Gabriel Arias, and Brian Rocchio right now who could all be in the middle infield. But then you also have Ahmed Rosario and Andres Jimenez there, and neither of them really ever get days off. So how does this all work? How long can you just keep burying these guys? So my biggest question is, do they just keep hanging on to all these guys, or will those be moved? So I think that it's just in areas that they have of just too many guys in one spot. But because of their lack of catching depth, I think Bo Naylor's definitely untouchable. (laughs) Yeah, you'd think the combination of very young major league roster and also stacked farm system would suggest that there might be some moves to be made there. Right? Correct. There, we're there waiting for some, it and they just, right. they're not doing it yet. So we're like, yeah. okay, bold <laughs> well, move. <laughs> 
when that Guardian Spread Office has made trades, they've often made some very wise ones. So they've also done a good job of developing players internally. And and I wanted to ask about just really it's kind of incredible continuity in that Guardian's front office, you know, going from Hart to Antonetti to Chernoff and Shapiro in there too. I mean, it's sort of the same chain of front office people, even though there's been a lot of turnover on the roster. So it seems like that stability, I guess you only have stability if things are working out well, but it seems like that stability is probably something of an institutional advantage too. Yeah. I mean, I think it only can be, and it seems like they're the chemistry within the front office is really just unlike anything that anyone's really ever heard of. And the way that they work so closely with Terry Francona, uh, I mean, Tito tries to tell us all the time, you guys don't understand, this doesn't happen anywhere else. The way that they're so open with me, the way that we're all involved, the way that we over-communicate, it's just, I think that the the vibe, the chemistry, everything that they have within this front office just plays dividends into why they're so successful and why they can figure things out because they can, they're all so close. They know what they're all thinking. They can read each other's minds, I'm sure, at this point because they've been around each other for so long. And they can just, they figure everything out and they are able to find the small things that other people maybe don't see. And that's why some of these trades end up working out. And Tito says it every time you ask, like, If he was with any other team, he probably would be done by now. But he just loves these guys so much, loves this front office, this organization so much that he's like, I'm not going anywhere else. This is this is where I am until I'm done. Yeah, I wanted to ask about Tito and sort of where where he is career wise and and, you know, maybe he doesn't want to be done. But is there a thought to sort of a, a known sunset? Because he's obviously had some health issues, some of them quite serious over the last couple of years that have kept him away from the team. So what's his state of mind right now? If you would have asked me this last year, the year before, I would have predicted that he would have been done in the very near future. I mean, he was in rough shape. Yeah. 2020 was brutal. He was in the ICU for a stint. He was really just not well. He thought it would be better in 2021. Really wasn't. I mean, it was okay, but then he still had to step away at the end of July. Had hip surgery, had foot surgery on the staph infection that he had. There were so many things, and he just wasn't really... He wasn't enjoying the game as much. He thought he was more of a hindrance on the team rather than being a benefit. And he his state of mind did not seem great. Well, this past year, this team energized him. He talked about that all the time. It was hard not to have all these kids around winning and having so much fun and not allow him to just realize how fun this is again. And this offseason, he really seems to have gotten in a good spot. His doctor gave him all the green lights of everything health-wise that he's gone through the last few years, said he looked like he was in in a good spot. He went back to his home in Arizona, and he's lost weight. Everything about him looks so much better when we saw him at Guards Fest. He went to the BBWAA dinner in New York to get his Manager of the Year award, and he looked great there. His coloring looks better. He just seems happier, more lively. So my guess at this point is he's going to keep going for a little bit. I mean, he just seems like he's rejuvenated in a way that I hadn't even seen since I've been here and I started in 2019. And so this is the best that I've seen him look. So as I mentioned, this was a fun team to follow from afar. I'm sure it was a fun team for Guardians fans to follow. And 
this uh, fan base, I mean, the attendance has uh, obviously tailed off steeply from what it once was, which was extraordinary. And their attendance did rebound on a per game basis, but almost every team's did last year. And I think relative to other teams, they actually went from, I think it was the ninth lowest per game attendance in 2021 to the sixth lowest last year. So it didn't really go in the right direction, even though the team was very fun and exciting. But of course, the team was not necessarily projected to be as good as it was. So I would imagine that people kind of caught Guardians fever a bit as time went along there. And of course, ownership not investing as much as it could in the roster, that drives people away, right? So you can't really put that on the fans often. It's about the way that the team is run. So I wonder whether after the success of last season and all of those players taking steps forward or making their debuts, whether there's some hope that there will be a a big boost in attendance this season and whether that might uh, play into ownerships being willing to loosen the purse strings slightly. Yeah, I would be, like you said, I'm also interested to see how this changes this year because, as you said, there was very low expectations for last season. They didn't make any moves that would get people excited. Right. And when... They were counted out in that way. I mean, this is a Brownstown. This is this is definitely a Brownstown, and all focus is there. And you have to make sure that the other thing that you're trying to sell is shiny, new, cool enough to outweigh the Browns. And so when you have that type of expectation that's out there, it was tough to draw people people's attention away from other things going on in Cleveland. And then as they gained steam, it was hard for people not to jump on that train. And so (laughs) September was a different atmosphere. The playoffs, I mean, you can talk to these guys on the team still and talk about what that experience was like to play in front of a packed house at Progressive Field for that game against the Yankees when they had the walk-off in the ALDS. I mean, it was was electric. And so we all got a taste of what that can be like and what it will likely be like again if they're successful as they were last season so I think that this year might be a little bit of a different tone not only are they expected to be good but they also got guys like Josh Bell and I know Mike Zunino is not the answer but of course when you're comparing it to the WRC plus of Austin Hedges as you mentioned order (laughs) earlier I think it seems like it's a boost so uh, I think it'll get people to be more excited going into this year this is a pro Mike Zunino podcast, so of course, of you're course, not, you're not going to find detractors here. <laughs> I think you know one of the places where the Guardians are obviously very strong, and not just strong in a they compete in the AL Central way, but a strong in an October way is in their bullpen. And I think everyone's familiar with sort of the top line guys here. Classe is fantastic. Karen Jack is, you know, possessed of great hair and also quite good. (laughs) But I'm curious sort of who you're excited about from their bullpen group who might be a little less well-known to the average fan. Yeah, I I think it'll be interesting to see how uh, Aniel De Los Santos turns out again this year. I mean, he he became a weapon for them. I mean, he was closing games at points whenever they didn't have Class A when he was going too many days in a row and Karen Check wasn't back yet. He was really a quiet weapon for them whenever they needed him. So I, I'm curious if he's going to be someone who plays another part like this. But now you're going to be testing how well I can pronounce this name in this <laughs> because I, I will have it by the end of spring, but we're, we're rusty at this point because it just looks like a bunch of letters. But one of their minor leaguers, Nick Michalachik, I think is how you say it. It might be Mikalogic, but I think it's Mikalogic. You know, it's a lot of letters and (laughs) I feel bad for whoever has to make that jersey. But 
He's somebody who's been highly regarded. He's not someone who's really been on a lot of top prospect lists. It's not like he's really has a whole bunch of eyeballs on him. But he's somebody that a lot of people have talked about within the organization. He's been successful. So I wonder if he could be somebody who makes some noise this spring and and proves that even if it's not opening day, maybe he could be someone who's worked into the mix by maybe in the summer and could be a weapon for them out of the bullpen that we weren't expecting. All right. So last question, kind of going big picture. What would qualify as a successful season for the Guardians this year? And and you could enter that major league level, minor league level, off the field, whatever it is. What should they hope to accomplish in 2023? I think the big thing is proving that they can take a step forward because they set such a high bar now for themselves and what was supposed to be a rebuilding year. And they turned that into showing the floor that they could have and showing that the foundation is strong. And so to do that, they need to prove that they won't regress, that their rookies are maybe thinking more of towards like, Oscar Gonzalez, that those guys belong. It seems like Stephen Kwan would be someone who would belong and, and won't regress, have that sophomore slump or anything. But seeing the guys that made really filled pivotal roles for them last season are ones that can be penciled into this future and figuring out like the main people who are going to be around for the foreseeable future and making sure that they are growing and developing. And it's not like they just had this fluke season last year. So I think the big picture is try to win right around as many games as last year. They had 92 wins last year. If they can get back to that type of level again and show that they're not dropping off and they can win the division title again, obviously fans would say try to get as far past of whatever they were in the postseason last year, get past that ALDS, get past the Yankees, get into the World Series. I think the biggest win for them is proving that they're not going to regress, that last year wasn't a fluke and that they can be as successful as they were, and that the foundation is just being set. All right. Well, you can read all about it at MLB.com, where Mandy will be covering the Guardians all season. You can also hear her on MLB's Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and you can find her on Twitter at MandyBell02. Thanks very much, Mandy. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. We'll take one more quick break, and we'll be back with The Athletic's Levi Weaver to talk Texas Rangers and whether Bruce Bochy, who broke Rangers fans' hearts when he was with the Giants, can help heal those hearts now. So even if I never sparkle Even if the winter's never gone Maybe I can still provide a little bit of hope To those who need to know that everything's not wrong Even in the winter, everything's not wrong All right, we are back, and we are joined now by Levi Weaver, who covers the Rangers for The Athletic and is driving somewhere across the vast expanse of Texas en route to Rangers spring training. Hello, Levi. Keep your eye on the road. Yeah, of course. Hello from the world of antique shops and uh, rotted-out old barns. 
<laughs> Sounds delightful. Highway 287, as you let us know That's before we one. started recording. The mm-hmm. armpit of Texas. I mean, you probably could have you probably could have figured that out from antique stores and rotted out buildings. Like if you've taken that drive, you're like, oh, yeah, 287. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I don't know the area that well, but I'm sure some of our listeners could. So we're going to talk about the Rangers in 2023. But if we could just rewind a bit now that the dust has settled on the bloodletting last summer, if you could kind of mm-hmm. take us through your understanding of what it is that did in John Daniels and how that whole sequence of events happened with Daniels being the one to let Chris Woodward go and then Daniels being cut himself just a, a couple days later and replaced by Chris Young. What was the proximate cause of that? And is it odd that it played out in that order of events? The answer depends. What was the approximate cause of the way that it played out? I would say it's probably a lack of common human decency by ownership. The cause for him being let go, uh, it's a little more complicated, right? Like You can look back at some of the ways that the draft has played out over the past 10 years, and there have been some picks that have been very questionable, but but there, uh, you know, Kip still has his job. They're the director uh, of scouting and, and the guy that's in charge of the draft. So, you know, but if that were the cause, you would think that he would not still be around. He is. I don't know for sure. So it is kind of speculation at this point. You know, you, what I do know is that the Rangers probably should have started their rebuild from those World Series years. You know, that era of Texas Rangers baseball. They probably should have started that when everything went wrong in 2014. Mm-hmm. And they had like 97 first basemen and everybody got hurt. <laughs> That's when they should have sort of capitalized and just turned it around quickly. They still had some assets that they could trade for real value. Uh, instead, they came back in 15. It looked like they weren't going to, you know, be the juggernauts they had been. And then here comes Jeff Bannister and his never ever quit mantra. And they overtook the Astros. Super exciting time to be a Rangers fan, right? You know, the, the, the Astros waved their come and take it flag and then. The Rangers clinched the division and waved there. We come and took it flag. Ha ha. And then 2016, they should have started the rebuild. And they went out and won uh, about 200 one-run games. And they had the best record in the American League. They summarily got bounced in the first round by the Blue Jays. But, you know, it was enough to kind of keep the, keep the band together. They should have started in 2017. And they kind of did. They traded Hugh Darvish. Uh, but they didn't really go all in on the, on the rebuild. And... Part of, this has never been said publicly by anyone in ownership, but part of, I think, the pressure was they were opening a new ballpark in 2020, and they wanted a good competitive team on the field in 2020. And so rather than really go into a full multi-year tank rebuild like the Astros had done in you know years prior, they kind of just tried to rush the process. Mm-hmm. And what that what what happened there is you know they ended up not being good in 2020, and then of course you know irony means that the first year in their big league park there was no fans, which was yeah. I mean it it sucks. It's funny, but it sucks. And so you know it took them a little longer than they should have with ownership going, hey, we really need a competitive product on the field in 2020. It really ties the hands of somebody trying to do a rebuild. And so by the time it got around to it, you know it looks like the rebuild is going well. There's, there have been some developmental, you know, when was the last time they developed a, a front-of-the-line starting pitcher? I don't know, Kevin Brown maybe, Kenny Rogers possibly, mm-hmm. uh, C.J. Wilson, if you count him, he was pretty short-lived as a top-of-the-rotation starter. So there were reasons, and you could look back and go, hey, man, you had 20 years, the Rangers have been bad for six straight, it's time for new leadership. 
But the way that it was done after that many years in the organization and, and beyond just his acumen as a front office uh, brain, like John Daniels was an immaculate representative of the organization. He was at every charity event. He was kind to fans. He was, he dealt with people with decency, uh, dealt with the scouts with decency, like from a, just a personal standpoint, like I really admired the way that he went about his business. And so if it was time to move on, then, you know, his contract was up at the end of last year. They could have just said, Hey man, we're going to not renew your contract. We're just going to give you the, the respect and the sort of dignity to step down at the end of the year. That's really how it should have been done. And so the, the theory that makes the most sense to me, and this is pure speculation, I want to make that clear, is that when Chris Woodward was fired, people were like, yeah, well, it should be John Daniels. And ownership heard that and went, oh, the fans are not happy. Let's do something else. And then turn around and fire John Daniels. That is speculation. But it makes the most sense to me that, you know, for, for the timing, the way that things played out. Because, he, I mean, even Ray Davis admitted, you know, we asked, hey, did John Daniels know this was coming? Like, especially, I don't know, two days ago when you marched him out here to fire the manager. Right. And he gave this weird little smirk and was like, no, he was taken totally by surprise. Wow, that's definitely not ghoulish and soulless at all. <laughs> well, and then it's it's sort of an interesting, I mean, there's the, the humanity of the timing of their decision. And then it's it's curious, too, when you think about the offseason moves that he was sort of empowered to make the additions of Semyon and Seeger. And then the through line to this offseason, I don't want to give short tra- change to the new regime in terms of your assessment of them, but you know, I think that there is a, a narrative that one could could construct around this Rangers team that despite the fact that they aren't quite where you might expect them to need to be to take on the Astros in the West, it's not like they haven't been aggressive in these last two off seasons, right? So there was Seeger and Semyon, and then this year, you know, they bring back Perez, and then they go out and get arguably the best pitcher in baseball when he's healthy in DeGrom and supplement that rotation with Valdi and Heaney. So I'm curious, sort of, maybe before we get into those individual signings and what the team expects of them for this season and beyond, what is your sense of where the club sees themselves in the competitive landscape of the AL West and then the, you know, the AL beyond that? Yeah, I mean, they, they've said, Chris Young, I've lost count of the number of times he said, we expect to contend for a playoff spot in 2023. And that is, you know, you, you would hear hedged comments in, you know, 2018, 19, 20, like we expect to be competitive and really that's not a lie. We, you know, we expect our players to go out and try hard, but that doesn't mean we expect to go win. To hear Chris Young use the word playoffs, we want to be in the postseason. That is our goal for 2023. That has been the goal all along. So, you know, I think they're realistic. They're not a World Series team yet. I think they are probably one, two, three bats short. Uh, they, they could use a real lockdown closer now, whether that's Jose Leclerc or Jonathan Hernandez, who knows. But yeah, I mean, they don't, I don't think they perceive themselves as World Series contenders, but I, I think they very much do think that the playoffs are within reach this year. The much-discussed record in one-run games last year, which was truly terrible and really an outlier, and if we attribute that largely to luck, and I know that there are people who will dispute that sometimes, but we at least know that it, it tends not to be consistent from year to year or predictive of future results, so... How much do you think that may have dictated 
the course that the Rangers took and the front office overhaul, that wasn't the only thing standing between the 2022 Rangers and the playoffs, but maybe it was the only thing standing between them and a level of respectability or progress that would have allowed well, Daniels or, or Woodward to keep their jobs. Yeah, no, I think it very much contributed. And I think especially that series in Baltimore in early July was really where it kind of the wheels came off of the of the season. They lost, I think, three games in a row in the ninth inning or something like that. And they had their closer and their second string closer were both recovering from Tommy John surgery. You had Joe Barlow, who had a great start to the year, but we kind of caught up to him. I think was was dealing with a few, not major health issues, but just niggling little things. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's where it really started to fall apart. And to some extent, you know, I guess it depends on where you fall on the spectrum of one-run record being luck or being something that the team could have done differently. And I, I think there were certainly instances where they had opportunities to win a game, and and it wasn't just, you know, a little dink bloop happened to find a hole. Like, guys sort of melted down, and, you know, sure, yeah, you got to hold the manager responsible for that on some level. On another level, you've got a team of guys that are in their first and second years in the big leagues, and those are those things are just going to happen. I mean, that's that's all part of learning how to be a big leaguer. That's all part of seasoning. You you hope that by years three and four, they've kind of got it figured out and keep their wits about them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, some of those games were ugly, and some of them were meltdowns. And you know, I don't know that that's necessarily Chris Woodward's fault, but that is generally the way that it goes when you see a team underperform. That you know, the manager is the one that takes the fall for it. So Young was brought in by Daniels to be his right-hand man, and then the apprenticeship did not last as long as I think Young probably expected it to. He seemed as surprised as anyone to be elevated when he was. So he seems like a a pretty impressive person, not just in stature, but what have we learned about Chris Young and how he operates in the fairly short time that he has been the primary decision-maker? The sense that I get is that while John Daniels was certainly very competitive. I think mean, you have to be to succeed in this job at all. Chris Young tends to wear it on his sleeve a little bit more. Daniels, I would never ever want to play poker with him. <laughs> Young is a bit more, not that he's like a hothead or, you know, just walking around throwing things and screaming. That's not it either. He's very collected. But you just hear him be a little more forthcoming in, in his, you know, hey, we expect to win. Like, now. It's time. This is, we're, we're done being at the bottom of the division. And, and I think the kind of the way that he has approached the offseason. now, would they have been this aggressive if it had still been Daniels at the helm? I, maybe we don't know, you know, like from everything that I understand, this was kind of the plan from the get go to start being aggressive last off season, take advantage of the shortstop market that existed. And then this year go for starting pitching. So it kind of seems like they're staying the course that was set. But it just feels like there's a little more um, urgency under under Young, and have heard from a few people who have worked with him that like it's that way in meetings too. Whereas Daniels would mean the same thing that Young means. He might say it in a little more. There's a way that I hear like he re- he reminds me a lot of friends of uh, Daniels does reminds me a lot of friends of mine who work in finance, mm-hmm. where they just very emotionlessly will tell you, well, here's what this is going to do. Here's what the yield is expected to be. Here are the you know the odds of that, and there you go. There's the information. <laughs> and young young feels a lot more like an athlete, where he's like, "Yeah, we got to win. Let's go now." <laughs> so that may just be a difference in communication style. I, I don't think they were far off. And I, I've asked Chris about this. Like, what what are the differences 
between sort of JD's philosophy and your philosophy. And he says, yeah, there are minor differences. We didn't agree on everything. Obviously, nobody, no two people ever do. By and large, like we were on the same page. Those are decisions that we were making together. And now I'm just sort of staying that course. So I, it, it very much may just be a difference in communication style. Well, I imagine that one of the ways that they are going to win now is if they get the best that they can and the most that they can out of DeGrom and then to a lesser extent Heaney. I think part of what makes these moves exciting just, you know, beyond the fact that Jacob DeGrom now pitches for the Texas Rangers is that if he is able to be on the field, they have new sort of opportunity for positive variance where I think they were pretty much lacking that in the rotation last year. So what are their expectations for those two in 2023? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll start with Heaney because I think he has a much shorter track record of success. If last year was a corner turn, you know, where he really figured something out with the Dodgers and he didn't even throw his change up that much. And the plan is for him to do that a little more this year. If that was a, you know, light bulb moment where he sort of figured out what has been inconsistent for years and years and years. Yeah, that's the hope. If it is just that he had a good year, then, you know, that's, that's going to be disappointing. I'm stating the obvious there. DeGrom, I think there's a little bit less, I think variance is a good word. The only concern is how many innings is he going to pitch? How long is he going to be on the mound? But if he goes out and pitches, you know, five shutout innings every night and does that 25 times a year, I think the Rangers are getting what they paid for. It's like, um, the output is high, the, the value is high, and you're probably going to see him spend some time on the injured list, and you sort of sure. take that into the equation. They've described him, you know, Chris Young has, as like, we signed the best pitcher in baseball. And so I don't think they make a, first of all, not a contract like that, but second of all, not statements like that. If they expect him to just come in and be, like, pretty good. Yeah, the, the Rangers starting pitching rotation uh projection via war is is the second best in baseball just between the Yankees and the Mets according to fan graphs but all of those guys have injury histories all of them are 31 or older you know you're not going to get through a season unscathed there unless you're really leading a charmed life so what is the depth behind those guys? I mean, I know you have Dane Dunning still around and, and some others in the mix. So when inevitably DeGrom or Perez or Gray or Valdi or Heaty or who knows how many of them get hurt or have to just have a rest period or something, how much redundancy is there in case things go wrong? More than they've had in a really long time, actually. You know, their first starting pitching move of the offseason was the trade for Jake Odorizzi, who at the time they signed him, projected to be around, I think, their third starter, and now he's not even in the rotation. Yeah. I think he would probably be the sort of next guy up. But after that, you know, you mentioned Dane Dunning. Glenn Otto is still around, and he's shown flashes of being pretty good, you know, probably a four starter in the big leagues if he's consistent. Cole Reagan spent some time in the big leagues last year. I don't think he probably projects to be a, you know, 15-year guy who contends for a Cy Young, but can he give you some innings? Sure. Cole Wynn is hopefully not far off. He had a down year last year, but he's not far off. So this year, I think those are, you know, Spencer Howard still exists to whatever level that uh, experiment is going to work out. So they've got some guys. Um, and then I think where it really starts to get exciting is in 2024, where you've got, you know, Jack Leiter and this Kumar Rocker going to be a starter. Owen White's got to be close. Ricky Venasco's back from Tommy John's surgery. They've, they've got some guys that have, that are probably at least a year off. But as this current rotation begins to age out, then I 
it seems like they've got quite a bit of starting pitching depth and could sort of just replace those guys one by one from within. We talked about the front office turnover. We didn't talk about the big change at manager. So we should probably talk at least briefly about Bruce Bochy, who kind of fascinates me because he's a slam dunk Hall of Famer, I think, regardless of how things go with him in Texas, which is interesting. It just kind of shows you how people value managers because he has a sub 500 career record as a manager. Even with the Giants, he had a a sub 500 career record, but he won three rings. So, of course, he's a... Mm -hmm. He's a lock for the hall. That's kind of how it works with managers. But he was lured out of retirement, I assume, with the promise of, as you said, Chris Young saying, no, we're really going to go for it. We're going to sign some guys because he would not come back Mm -hmm. to just oversee a rebuild here. So is he seen as sort of uh, old school? Is he seen as he's going to bring the winning type of culture here? What sort of front office uh, field staff relationship can one expect under Bruce Bochy in 2023? And and why was he the guy? Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic because Bochy managed Chris Young when Young was with the Padres. So there's definitely a mutual respect there, I think, for Chris Young, who uh, is still a relatively new GM and president of baseball operations, I think it's going to help him to just sort of have that trust that he's got a guy there that's a lifer. He knows what he's doing. He's not going to have to be involved at all in the bullpen management and the, you know, all of this. I do think there is a certain amount of old school in Bochi, but to hear him talk about you know, analytics and the way that the game has changed and even hearing him just sort of spitball ideas for how to deal with these new rules that are coming in with the limited number of throwovers and the shifts and all of that, like he's definitely still there. He's aware. And I don't mean to sort of pick on an easy target, but, you know, Tony La Russa, also a Hall of Famer, kind of in that same age range. I think the game passed him by while he was out. But then you look at, you know, Dusty Baker, who is also in that age range, has been around forever. The game didn't really pass him by necessarily. And also he got a really great roster to work with. <laughs> um, I think those are kind of the two examples of how an older manager can can fare in the big leagues and that Bochy strikes me as more more Baker than La Russa. just in hearing him you know he'll be sitting and talking to baseball writers who are I'm not going to suggest that I'm a baseball genius I am in fact quite the opposite very often but ideas that I didn't even think of as we're talking about these new rules he's he's coming up with you know well, have you considered this what about this and he's he's definitely there I mean he's and then the other thing is that he surrounded himself with or rather the team has surrounded him with a coaching staff that is by and large, you know, Donnie Ecker is there, Tim Hires, they brought in Will Venable. Those guys have that sort of new understanding of how the game has changed in recent years. When you look at Mike Maddox, the new pitching coach, he is kind of an old school guy. So it's an interesting mix of, of coaches that they have. And um, as long as it doesn't turn into a, a competition, I think it's going to be great. Because I've always looked at the, scouting versus analytics or whatever. And it kind of becomes this competition of like, this way is better. No, this way is better. And the truth is you really need both. Analytics are not going to be able to look into a guy's eyes and tell you like, you know what? I know what this guy's going through. He is his dad died three days ago and he's just not in the right headspace for this moment. Even though his spin rate tells me that he would be a great matchup against this batter, right? You need that human element. But if you have two guys that are both, like locked in and ready to go that you trust, but this guy's pitch shape works better against this batter. And you know that because of the analytics work that you've done. And like, that's a great tool to have. 
And if they can merge those two together, and I think the most successful teams do it well, merge those two together well, I think they've got the personnel in place to have uh, access to all of that information. You mentioned Jose Leclerc, and maybe this is a chance for us to talk about the bullpen that Bochi will be managing. Leclerc is fascinating to me. He missed all of almost all of 2021 with Tommy John surgery. He looked very good when he came back last year. The Rangers bullpen was sort of middle of the road by war and ERA when you when you look at 2022. So, you know, what what do they think they're going to get out of Leclerc and then what what other interesting guys might be populating the the rest of that bullpen? Yeah, uh, the hope, I guess the ceiling for Leclerc would be and I don't have these numbers in front of me out here in West Texas, but um, the second half in 2018, when the Rangers traded Keone Kella to the Pirates and Leclerc took over as the closer, he was as dominant as any closer that I have personally ever watched. I mean, it was just, it was absurd, the numbers that he was putting up. The next year he comes into camp, he's the guy, and totally blows up. There were times when he looked like he was just sort of closing his eyes and spinning around and then throwing the ball. So I think he has the, the stuff to do it. He's got the the ability to do it. Now, does he have the, after he comes back from Tommy John, like you said, he looks good last year. Can he put that together and have the, I don't know, the mental fortitude and stamina to like really get into that mentality of like the ninth inning is mine. You kind of got to have a guy that's sort of a, uh, I don't know. I, I sound like I'm 70 years old when I say this, like, oh, you got to have the right mentality to be the closer. <laughs> but I mean, you kind of, kind of do a little bit. So yeah, I mean, I think he definitely has the ability to be a closer. If he doesn't, Jonathan Hernandez looked also pretty closerish at times before he went down with Tommy John surgery. Uh, one guy I think they're going to miss uh, unless they sign him because he's still a free agent is Matt Moore, who was really great out of the bullpen last year, and I think really found a place to thrive as he had sort of wandered about the baseball universe for a while, trying to uh, live up to some of his early prospect status. He was nasty last year out of the bullpen. And they've lost him, so that sucks. That loss is probably offset by the fact that they also lost like Garrett Richards, who wasn't very good out of the bullpen last year. So those two guys, Hernandez and Leclerc, are the interesting names. Taylor Hearn was really good once he got to the bullpen last year. Not great as a starter, but very good out of the pen. And then they've got some interesting non-roster guys. You know, like Reyes Maranta is there. Ian Kennedy wasn't great last year, but was pretty good the year before with Texas. Zach Littell, if that's how you pronounce it, maybe it's little, I don't know, I didn't watch a lot of Giants games, has shown some, like, one year he's pretty great, and the next year he's not. He's due to be great this year, so maybe that's just the Giants wearing off on him. There are some guys that I think could grab a spot in camp. Uh, Danny Duffy is in camp, is a name I haven't heard in a while. But, I, yeah, if it were me, I would love to see them go out and bring back more, or, you know, Zach Britton is still a free agent, maybe bring him in. I think they could really use one more guy that is reliable and and kind of just can tie it all together. So we talked about the starting pitching as the strong suit. The weakness would be the lineup and it was the weakness and they didn't do a whole lot to address that. I believe they didn't bring in anyone on a major league contract, any hitter, right? So they're kind of banking on the same guys getting better, a full season of Josh Young, etc. So maybe we can talk about the high point first. Because the the issue was, well, there were multiple issues maybe, but they had a low on base percentage. They had the sixth lowest on base percentage of any team last year, but they did have a breakout and the real bright spot 
was Nathaniel Lowe, who was on a rate basis, at least the second best hitter in baseball behind Aaron Judge in the second half of last season. Now, that was with a 400 plus BABIP. But what was the cause cited for how he suddenly got so great? And I guess that would have some bearing on whether you can expect it to continue. Yeah, it was. So there's a it took me I've been doing this now seven years uh, to learn this hidden baseball secret. And I am about to make it public for everyone on this podcast, which is to get hits. You have to swing the bat. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that is something that he just didn't really do a whole lot of. He had a lot of called third strikes. Uh, I really saw that being funnier than it was, than it was. And then I said it and I, that was not my, that was not my best work. He did. He had a lot of called third strikes the year before and they encouraged him last year to actually, you know, get the bat off of his shoulder, swing. You have a good eye. You're not going to just chase a bunch. So get out there and do it, man. And, um, and he did. And, and we saw the results. So if it was just a mindset thing, and like you said, the Babbitt was really high in the second half. Is he going to hit 300 again? I don't, I don't know. You know, maybe. There's something to be said for this being the second year of a new mindset. Maybe he gets more comfortable with it and he's even better. Or maybe he just reverts back to, you know, if he has a stretch where he's uncomfortable and reverts back to being very passive again. It's, I think, all on the table. Uh, but yeah, there, there's cause to believe that it could be sustainable just because it really was more of an approach and mindset thing. Like, swing at good pitches, don't just take them to take them. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's, I would say, cautious cautiously optimistic on my part guy who you probably don't need to tell to swing and who i just levi i can't figure out if i believe it so i want to know if you believe it okay (laughs) and that's adalas garcia who you know like he's he strikes out like 28 percent of the time or did in 2022 but he still managed a 112 wrc plus he hit 27 home runs put up like four wins by our version of war and He's a good base runner, and you look at a guy who, uh, like, you might invite to be a little more discerning and think, is this going to stick? And I, I don't know. So you tell me, how, what are your, what are your expectations for Adolis Garcia this year? Oh man, rude I've question. Already outed myself. I've already outed myself as a seventy-year-old. So you guys want to hear a word that you're going to hate that I <laughs> yeah. hate, and I'm just, I'm just cringing at myself for it because I'm about to say this word. Do you, do either of you believe in clutch? <laughs> I'm persuadable <laughs> because this may have just been pure luck. It very I I am fully aware this might have been pure luck. There were so many times last year, and this is weird for a team that lost a lot of one run games, where he would come up late in the ball game. It's a it's a clutch moment. And it just, I just feel like I'm swearing in front of my parents every time I say the word clutch on this on a FanGraphs podcast. <laughs> And and he would come through, whether it be a home run or, you know, a big RBI single or, you know, even some of his walks came in very high pressure situations where the team could really use a walk. Uh, and I think that probably, if you know, again, not having the numbers in front of me, I would imagine that contributed to some of his uh, high war for, for a guy with such high strikeout numbers. Uh, one thing that he did better last year than the year before is he sort of maintains his conditioning, which the year before he was just such a all-out player every day every play he was just like smashing into walls and going 100 miles an hour last year he was a little bit better at like rein it in you don't have to crash into a wall in a seven-run ball game like you made the team you're good and was able to sort of sustain his performance a little deeper into the into the year uh absolutely the the chase is a problem it's always been a problem but 
I think there's a place in a lineup for a guy like that. And I don't know if it's your number four hitter, but I, you know, for the guy that can play solid defense, has a cannon arm, good speed, good base runner, and has a tendency to come up big in close and late moments, like I think you just sort of pay for that with the currency of strikeouts and go, that's just, you can't take away his aggression. Otherwise, you're going to sort of start to lose some of these other things that he does well. Um, you can't build the whole team out of Adolis Garcia. But can you have one Adolis Garcia on your team? I, I think you can. And if you're not relying on him to be the guy, then, then yeah, I think he could, could be a valuable part of a, of a lineup. Well, first of all, I think it's fine to utter the C word on a Fangraphs podcast. It's okay. In <laughs> fact, there's a, a stat called Clutch on the Fangraphs website, and Adolis Garcia was in the top 20 in that last year. So it, it's backed up by Ooh, the stats. Good. I'm glad I don't look like an idiot. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that was why his war was so high, but it, it did add some extra value. The only question is, is that a, a repeatable feat, right? Because uh, his clutch sure. was, was negative in 2021. So I don't know whether that's something he can continue to do. But beyond that, I wanted to ask about the two big additions last year, Semyon and Seeger. Now, Semyon mm-hmm. started the year just hitting horrendously and then righted mm-hmm. the ship and, and finished very strong. Seeger had a pretty good year. I, I guess it was a down year for him, but he has been often cited as the number one candidate to be helped by the new positioning rules, right? As right. a guy who gets shifted constantly. So are they hoping for better things from that duo just if Semyon doesn't start so slow and Seeker maybe gets a, a leg up from the shift ban? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Simeon's got to have a better start this year. That was really abysmal last year. And Seeger wasn't so hot to start the year either, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I thought was interesting was Seeger's home road splits. He'd said when he signed in Texas that he likes hitting in that ballpark, and that proved to be very true. He did not hit super great on the road for most of the year. So I, I am very curious to see how the, the shift change uh, helps Seeger. I don't know that it'll be quite as much as you know, the, uh, it's not going to turn him into an MVP, I don't think. If it does, please feel free to pull this audio and <laughs> blast it everywhere. But yeah, I think I think the key to this is Semyon. Like, you can't have him hitting, like, what, 136 or something at the end of April this year. Um, they, they need to get off to a reasonably good start if they want to contend for a playoff spot. And then the other guy that I think is, uh, well, two other guys that I think are really important, Mitch Garver, who struggled last year and then was hurt. He... The Rangers need another solid right-handed bat. He very well could be that. He's shown in the past that, that it's in there somewhere. And then Josh Young, who was, I think, expended so much energy kind of getting himself healthy. He had that great stretch in AAA. And then, and I, I just think he wore himself out. You know, first being exhausted, having it also be your first couple weeks in the big leagues, uh, obviously struggled a little bit. But I think if Young is successful at the plate, and he has been at every level that he's played at, then I think that will also go a long way in sort of supplementing. You can't just have those two guys and also hope that Nathaniel Lowe repeats his silver slugger performance and then expect to go win a playoff spot. You're going to need more contributors. So Garcia, like Meg said, and and Garver and, and Young, I think are all pretty essential to this thing succeeding. Yeah, Young had the distinction of being, I think, ninth on our top 100 last year, and it being announced that he needed surgery the day the top 100 went 
Oh my god. So sorry, Rangers fans. Maybe we had something to do with the with the jinx there. I want to talk about a another pitcher for a second. One who I think was just like a really good kind of steady Eddie for the Rangers last year and was, you know, so consistent that he was extended a qualifying offer and came back to the team. And that's Martin Perez, who managed to like have a consistent year of performance. He had had stretches where he was like good for a half season and then kind of tailed off. Um, And I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that he was able to sort of sustain over the full campaign. So what changed for him, if anything, and what might we see from him in 2023? The biggest thing that we would see from Martin when he was here the first time was that he would go out and you know, if he pitched six innings, he was probably going to pitch five shutout innings. And then there would be one inning in there somewhere, like might be the first inning, might be the sixth inning, could be, but there's going to be one inning where he can't find the strike zone. He gives up five hits and three or four runs, and he's just like pissed, right? And he's trying to like figure out how to rediscover it. And then he comes back out the next inning and he's fine. That, to me, was the thing he avoided really well last year. And we talked to him a little bit about it. He said it was just a, like, he never said it in a way that made a whole lot of sense to me. It doesn't have to make sense to me as long as it makes sense to him. But but the idea of just, like, I think he said, I know who I am now. Like, okay. If that's if that was the, the you know, feather that Dumbo had to hold in his nose to be able to fly, then great. I'm glad that you know who you are. Kind of like Lowe and his approach at, you know, being more aggressive and swinging at more pitches. If Perez can maintain that, you know, the stuff was always good. When he was a prospect, his changeup was always very, like, an above average pitch. He just, it was a struggle to keep him mentally tough for that one inning per game. And, um, yeah, so it, similar to Heaney in Los Angeles, like, was that an actual breakthrough or was it just a good year? Uh, I don't know. I'm very bad at predicting these things, but that is, that is the spectrum as I see it. Yeah, the fact that Perez accepted the qualifying offer makes you think that either he didn't believe that he was going to continue to be that great, or maybe the market didn't, or maybe he didn't know that the market was going to be as great as it was for some sort of sketchy starting pitchers ultimately. But I guess uh, given the other deals that were signed this winter, it's uh, probably pretty advantageous to get him back on a one-year contract. I I did want to ask about one more spot on the offense, because probably the weakest spot of all was left field last year. Mm -hmm. There was actually no other team that was sub-replacement level from all of its left fielders combined. And then the Rangers were like more than two wins below replacement level from their left fielders. And left field is a position kind of like DH where not every team has a a star starter penciled in there. You kind of rotate guys through and give guys rest days. But even so, the Rangers still project to have the least valuable collection of left fielders this season. So is there a way that that does not happen again? <laughs> and who ends yeah, up and actually getting the playing time there? That's, I mean, that's been the question in, in Arlington for nine years now. Like since David Murphy left, it's been a carousel of left fielders. And I, I only know this because I just looked it up for a story. So Bubba Thompson played, I think, I think it was 34 games in left field last year. That, was the most games in left field that anyone in the Rangers played in left field last year. He was their leading, like, spent the most, most games in left field. No other team had a left fielder that led the team in games played in left field that was under 50, and most of them were closer to 70 or 80. Like, it was just that level of who who's there today, no idea, 
I'm going to close my eyes and point at somebody. They used, I think, the third most left fielders in all of baseball last year. They used 13 left fielders. You have correctly identified the biggest question going into camp. And I think there was question of, you know, are they going to be in on Conforto? Are they going to be in on, are they, are they still in on Profar? We, I think they could use somebody to solidify that position. But I am also a believer that Bubba Thompson is that guy because that man is not only super, super fast, but they have moved the bases a little bit closer together. Every time he got caught stealing last year, it was either every time or all but one. Hmm. It was a review where he sort of popped off the bag. Hmm. And every other, like, he was safe every other time. So give him another couple of inches. His singles basically are going to turn into doubles. And good defense. Can he get on base? And I don't know. But if, if he can even get on base at like a 320, 330 clip, as your nine hitter and turn over the lineup and give you the speed ahead of guys like Simeon and Seeger and Lowe. I think there's a place for somebody with that level of speed uh, also in the lineup. So I would put him as my like lead candidate. I think it's also pretty clear the Rangers don't necessarily agree with me because they've just, I mean, they brought in Glenn Frazier and Travis Jankowski and Joe McCarthy on uh, minor league deals. And then it could also be Brad Miller or it could be, Ezekiel Duran, who played outfield in uh, in winter ball, or it could be Josh Smith, uh, like it, it could be Mark Mathias. So I think I think I just need like sixteen left fielders. <laughs> we, we we just don't know. You know, I I don't know that I would bet money on Bubba Thompson, but I I would be really interested to see what he does with some extended playing time. All right. So one big picture question for you: the Rangers are are kind of trying to build a contending team backward compared to the way that that most teams do it these days where you develop a a young homegrown cost-controlled whatever euphemism you want to use core and then you spend some money and and supplement and the rangers are doing it in the opposite direction or at least attempting to they kind of lost a generation of prospects that didn't really develop and now they're just trying to go out and sign some free agents and and get themselves close enough but it's really hard to build at least a, a consistent winner just doing it that way, just importing players from outside the organization right. and spending. So you do have to sprinkle in some prospects and productive players from within at some point. Now, the Rangers system has improved. I think it's a, a consensus top 10 system. But when are they hoping that that will really pay some dividends and, and the identity of this team will be less about the free agents exclusively than about some really uh, blue chippers coming up from within? I think the answer depends on how they look at the trade deadline this year. You know, if they look like they're a couple of games out of a playoff spot or they're in a playoff spot, then I think that farm system starts to pay dividends in the form of trade chips. You know, they've got a few infielders that I think are starting to really provide some value. I don't think they're going to trade Evan Carter. He seems to be to be somebody that they really view as a, a difference maker at some point in the big leagues. But they've got you know, some of the pitching depth that I mentioned earlier. They've got some other guys at the lower levels that look like they could be something so if it is that route then you know give it a few months and we'll start to see those dividends if they're not if it looks like they need to just develop those players from within and let those guys take over i think we're probably looking at sometime next year and there are guys thomas sejaci is an interesting name that i think has started to open some eyes and, and looks like he could be not a superstar but if you're looking for a like a regular it was a one of those just old school like doesn't use batting gloves dirt balls that somehow just gets hit after hit. Mm-hmm. I think he's somebody, uh, Acuna is down there. 
Is Dustin Harris going to be a big leaguer? Probably. Will he be a good one? I don't know. I think this is a big year for Justin Foscue uh, to establish whether he's going to be a Ranger or whether he's going to be trade bait. But I think a lot of those guys, the bulk of those guys, I think are going to really start to push for big league uh, promotions sometime next year. So I think this year the plan is roll with these three agents, see if they need to make a trade at the deadline and try and really go for it. But it's nice, too, because they, you know if they do have that depth, then that makes it a more sustainable thing where it's not just like you're pushing all your chips to the middle of the table because you're bored and it's either win or go home. Like there, there does appear to be maybe a little bit of sustainability here, but they're going to have to develop those players. And that is a, they overhauled their development system in 2018 because the last round of guys that were supposed to be the mega stars, it was, you know, Lewis Brinson and Nick Williams and Joey Gallo and Nomar Mazzara and Rupnet Odor and Ronald Guzman. And a bunch of pitchers whose arms fell off. So this new system, hopefully what we're seeing is that take effect and we're starting to see some actual development. But they're going to have to get, you know, like if Josh Young really succeeds, that'll be a, a nice little feather in their cap. Uh, but we just we just won't know until it happens, I guess. So related last question. I know you're no fan of predictions, so you'll probably be relieved oh dear. <laughs> that, we, <laughs> that we are no longer putting our guests on the spot and asking for a win total. Yay! Although I noticed that you already did make a win total prediction back in December at The Athletic. They pinned yeah. you down and you said 80. <laughs> but I don't, Did I say 80? I, you did. Yeah. <laughs> probably okay. not with a ton of confidence or, or uh, presumed insight. I know you have none and neither do I. That's why. That whole column was hung in cheek about how right. they were just going to be terrible and everybody was going to die on the field. So I'm surprised <laughs> I didn't say like 35 wins. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, neither of us uh, believes that that we have some special insight into how many wins a team will have. And that's why we've retired this. But we've replaced it with a, a last question that's kind of more open-ended just about how the Rangers could decide whether this season was successful. Like what should the benchmarks be either at the major league level or on the farm or off the field or whatever that would define whether this was a success when we look back and it's all said and done? Uh, this is such an easier question. Thank you. <laughs> if they make the playoffs. Uh-huh. I mean, that's been the stated goal. That's been, that's been said so many times. Like the plan this year is to make the playoffs. End of story. So, yeah, that's it. If they make the postseason, it was a success. If they don't, it was not a success. And I, I think that is about as clear cut as it gets. All right. That's simple. Okay. Well, you can read Levi's coverage of the Rangers season at The Athletic. You can find him on Twitter at 32EFIS as long as Twitter lasts. And we'll link to the other places where you can find him just in case it doesn't. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And we're glad we didn't cause you to run off the road or anything. So far, so good. (laughs) Good to talk to you guys. You too. Thanks, Levi. All right. All right. It is time for the Pass Blast, which will come from 1968. And I I do have a even deeper blast from the past here that I wanted to share because former Pass Blaster Richard Hirschberger pointed this out in our Facebook group, and I got a kick out of it. This is uh, from 150 years ago. So from 1873, which was the pre-National League uh, during the National Association days. And I think it's uh, relevant because we're talking these days about trying to find ways to restrict defensive positioning and how maybe uh, fielders have gotten too good at standing in the perfect place to intercept a ball. Well, here's a, a complaint, I guess, an observation from the New York Clipper, February 8th, 1973. And the author wrote... 
the old style of playing the outfield, in which all that was required of a player was to catch the ball whenever it came near to his position, has been superseded by a method of fielding which is characteristic of the new system of strategic play, now so necessarily an element of success in professional contests. Formerly, anything like coming in closer to the infield or going out further in accordance with the different features of the batting was almost unknown. Now, however, we frequently see a right fielder playing almost within reach of the foul ball line, the left fielder backing up the third baseman, and the center fielder close to the second baseman when the pitcher calls in his men for any special point of play, while each man in the outer field is taught never to stand still or to occupy steadily any particular standpoint in the field, but to change his position accordingly as a heavy hitter or a fair foul strategist takes his position at the bat. In former years, too, all that an outfielder was selected for was his ability to catch a ball well and thrown in from a long distance. Now, head work is considered essential, and no man can be regarded as an expert and serviceable man in the position who, in addition to his ability to hold a ball well and to make a long throw, cannot judge the play of the batsman from his style of taking his position at home base and his matter of handling his bat, and who cannot also run in and stop bases from being made instead of merely waiting until the ball comes to him. In other words, your skillful outfielder is one who can catch surely, throw inaccurately to the right position, judge his batsman well, and especially be effective in stopping ground balls in such a way as to limit a second or third base hit to one base secured. So even 150 years ago, they were just uh, getting the hang of not standing in exactly the same place all the time. This is like, uh, I guess you can't call it analytics exactly, but But it's sort of the same idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, we might have to actually shift ourselves from better to better. If this is uh, someone who's going to hit the ball over there or not hit it as deep, maybe I should move in a little bit. This was not something that they knew initially, but it uh, took a little time to figure that out. And I guess Harry Wright and the, the 1869 Red Stockings being professional, they were adept at this sort of thing. And then it kind of caught on as the game got more and more professionalized. So we've talked in recent years. I mean, now that teams have stat cast, it seems like they've gotten some insights that maybe were lost on earlier outfielders about how much to move from batter to batter or how deep to stand typically. But really, 150 years ago, they were sort of talking about the same thing. You can't just stand out there. You have to actually have to have some head work. And I wonder back then when you could kind of direct the ball more as the batter, whether that was even more important because uh, I don't know whether the the trends were as pronounced. Obviously, they didn't have spray charts back then. So you were sort of responsible for picking up on, on those scouting tips yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. All right, here is the actual pass blast from 1968 and also from current pass blaster David Lewis, who is an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. He writes, run boosting experiment gets the old college try. Dominant pitching performances throughout the 1968 season led that year to be dubbed MLB's Year of the Pitcher. Bob Gibson set the modern ERA record, Denny McLean won 31 games, and Carl Yastrzemski won the AL batting title with a mere 301 average. At the season's conclusion, to combat the low offensive numbers, MLB made the strike zone smaller and lowered the height of the pitching mound. That spring, however, before any records had been set or any rule changes made, a Penn State University professor offered a suggestion that he believed would increase run production. A May 23, 1968 Boston Globe article titled Penn State 9 to Test New Base Running Rule outlined the plan. Quote, under present rules, when a base runner is caught, he pays two penalties. He is off the base paths and his team is charged with an out. 
under Penn State journalism professor Ivan L. Preston's proposal, the offensive manager would have a choice, remove his runner from the base pass without losing an out, or take the out and return the runner to the last base he touched safely. David concludes Preston was reported to believe that as the penalty for getting tagged out would be lesser, players would be more inclined to attempt to steal a bag or leg out an extra base on a hit. Preston was quoted as saying that his experiment would produce more of what the fans come out to the ballpark to see, ball games with higher scores and more exciting base running. Penn State baseball coach Chuck Medler agreed to try out the rule change during an intra-squad scrimmage on May 24, 1968. Unfortunately, however, the game was rained out and does not appear to have been rescheduled. So it was never actually tried, but it's uh, not that far removed from the measures that we're implementing now to try to make things a little bit more forgiving for base runners and encourage more base stealing and such. So I guess... Most of the time, it would probably be a a pretty simple decision about whether you want to leave the runner out there or take the runner off and and avoid the outs. But I guess it would add a little more strategy. It's uh, kind of see what he was thinking there. Ben, in The Last of Us, the Red Sox (laughs) never broke the curse of the Bambino. That's true. Yeah, not I'm in, probably not the first the, person the to the TV have show that. timeline in the video game. Oh, timeline, and it's a little different, but okay. yes, yeah. That's in true. the t- in the TV show, they're just sitting there, you know, cursed and made out of mushrooms. <laughs> It's true. Anyway, this Professor Preston, according to another article I saw, he didn't make quite clear if his plan included a base runner getting tagged out trying to stretch a single into a Ah. double or a double into triple or whether it was just for base stealing attempts. But uh, people were railing against it and saying we should leave the game alone. But this was before the peak of the year of the pitcher. So perhaps their tune might have changed. Anyway, we're kind of back in the same boat now. And I guess you're going to a, a demonstration this week of the new I rules am. changes in Arizona. So we will probably talk about how that went next time. Yes, we, we will. And I promise that I will only spend a certain amount of time on who is actually doing the demonstration, which I don't <laughs> actually know the answer to. And I just, I hope it's a bunch of like league folks in polos, you know, I hope they're like, this is what it could look like. And then I'm going to be like, but will it though? <laughs> yeah. All right. One other interesting thing about that 1873 pass blast, by the way, that piece mentions that it used to be that left field was considered the most important outfield position, but newly things had changed so that they were considered all equally important. I don't know why left field was initially considered most important. These days, hitters tend to pull most of their grounders, but hit most of their fly balls to the opposite field. So a right-handed hitter, who's more common than a left-handed hitter, would tend to hit their flies to right field, not left. Maybe they just didn't know that in the early days of baseball, or Maybe it was different back then because they were still pitching underhand at that point. So a lot of things were different. A few follow-ups here. When we talked about Yu Darvish's extension last time, I noted that there was a change in the CBA so that when a player is traded in the middle of a deal now, the average annual value in the remainder of the deal, not the entire deal, is what counts against the acquiring team's competitive balance tax number. And some listeners were discussing whether there could be some loophole exploited there. Sign a player long-term, heavily front-load the deal, then trade them, and get more back because the CBT number would be lower for the team that's acquiring the player. I don't know that that will really come into play with you, Darvish, given his age and that it's not so dramatically front-loaded and also he got a full no-trade clause. But I was talking to Ben Clemens about it. You could construct some sort of deal where there could be a quirk like that if you know you're signing someone just to trade them. If you had like a four-year $80 million deal that was structured like $30 million, $30 million, $10 million, $10 million, and then you could trade that contract after two years and 
get a lot of salary relief, but that would be fairly egregious. So maybe the league would step in to stop that at that point, as I think the NHL did about a decade ago with some similar arrangements. One more baseball exceptionalism suggestion from listener and Patreon supporter Tim, who noted that the concept of double headers sets baseball apart. Again, this is maybe tied into just how many games there are in baseball and maybe the fact that there's a little less exertion, but it is odd that you can play back-to-back games on the same day. That is unusual, I would say, in a team sport, though that's becoming less common in baseball too. So this is another example of the things that set baseball apart, getting sanded down somewhat. Also, we talked about the MLB and MLBPA logos solely representing hitters these days because they just show a batter and pitchers don't bat anymore for the most part. So it's sort of exclusionary. We talked about ways that you could work a pitcher in there. Listener Andrew noted that the Taiwanese Baseball League, the CPBL, that league's third generation logo was a pitcher, just a pitcher, not a hitter. That was only in use from 1998 through 1999. Listener Nate suggested that maybe you could have someone making a defensive play, which could encompass pitchers and hitters. He suggested maybe someone catching a pop-up, but of course, pitchers are usually discouraged from catching pop-ups. So I don't know, someone catching a line drive. Not sure it would make the best logo, but it would do a better job of including everyone. We also talked last week about a scenario where hitters self-toss. There's no pitcher. The hitter would just toss the ball up and hit the ball themselves and how that would change baseball or whether it would still be baseball. Listener Nicholas pointed out that we were essentially describing the Swedish game of brandball, which he said isn't really a competitive sport, but is played at schools or as a party game. And yeah, I had made the Pesapalo comp, but maybe brandball is an even closer comp. And former pass blaster Richard Hirschberger, also inspired by that discussion, wrote in to say that our conversation about self-pitching and striking out hit closer to the mark than one might think. The earliest detailed description of baseball comes from a 1796 book called Games for the Exercise and Recreation and Body and Spirit for the Youth and His Educator and All Friends in Innocent Joys of Youth by Johann Christoph Friedrich Gutsmuths. It included a section on a game called Ball with Free Station, or English Baseball, describing what is clearly a very early form of baseball. In it, the pitcher stands next to the batter and tosses the ball upward, the batter hitting it on its way down. This is not quite the self-pitching of fungo hitting, but it is pretty close. But what of the truly inept batter who could not hit the ball, bringing the game to a halt. The solution was that he got three tries. If on the third try he still missed the ball, it was in play as if he had hit it and he could run to first base. He probably would not get there as the pitcher was right there to pick up the ball and runners were put out by a fielder throwing the ball at him. The likely outcome for our hapless friend would be a ball in the small of his back while running to the base, but at least he had a chance. It was a very inclusive rule, giving even the inept player an opportunity without making the other players endlessly wait for him to hit the ball. In the decades that followed, the pitcher moved toward the center of the infield, adding a horizontal component to the delivery. This led to another player being placed behind the batter to receive the pitch should it not be hit. The three chances rule remained in place, but now if the catcher caught the third try, the batter was out just as if he had hit a fly ball that was caught. If the catcher failed to catch that third try, the batter took off running just as if he had hit a ground ball. So we find this hypothetical buried in the early history of pre-modern baseball, and it turns out to be the origin of both the strikeout and the drop third strike rule. Lastly, an email from listener James, who corrects something I said in passing with an email that has the subject line, how can you not be pedantic about Dickens? On episode 1966, Ben said that we don't know whether Ebenezer Scrooge's changes stuck, but the last two paragraphs of the book tell us that they do. Excellent point. Dickens did specify that Scrooge was a changed man and his changes persisted. As James says, does this change Ben's overall point? Probably not. But if Joe West deserves a chance to tell his side of the story, certainly Scrooge does. If we stay on schedule, we will be previewing the Mariners and the White Sox later this week, but that will be preceded by a non-preview pod midweek. For now, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com 
patreon.com slash effectively wild and pledging some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going help us stay ad free and get yourself access to some perks the following five listeners have already done so anna chen derek shin christopher luke David Bowman, and Ben O'Dell. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, access to monthly bonus episodes and playoff live streams, discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and more. Patreon supporters can also contact us via the special Patreon site, but anyone can contact us via email at podcast.fangraphs.com. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will talk to you a little later this week. And the only friend that I could claim is a pale old ghost who came in chains to warn me of my ill-begotten fate. He said he lived his life regretfully, so full of fear and full of greed, and for him the chance to change was much too late. But he said that I was Ebenezer Scrooge, that I still had some life to lose.